Flexibility is great. That's why there's yoga. Flexibility for your insurance coverage is great too. That's why there's United Healthcare Insurance Plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, United Healthcare Insurance Plans offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. One of these plans may be right for you if you're, say, between jobs, coming off your parents' plan, turning a side hustle into a full hustle, or even missed open enrollment. Want more flexibility? Find out more about United Healthcare Insurance Plans at uh1.com. Say hello to a new era of mental health care. Cerebral is here to help you achieve your mental wellness goals with professional therapy and medication management support. 100% online. You'll experience the all-new Cerebral way, an innovative approach to mental wellness designed around you. You'll get a personalized treatment plan from a therapist, prescriber, or both in a safe and judgment-free space. Your cerebral therapist or prescriber will outline a customized plan with clear milestones along the way, so you can get to feeling your best. With Cerebral, you're not alone in your mental health journey. We're here to empower you to live a fulfilling life. So take that first step towards a brighter future and sign up today at Cerebral.com slash podcast and use code ACAST to get 15% off your first month. Offer only valid on monthly plans. Other exclusions may apply. Offer ends July 31st, 2024. See site for details. Connecting to the big show. This is the opinion line with PJ Coogan. Punch 96 FM. Some fairly spectacular pictures that came in yesterday in the wake of Agnes. This time yesterday morning, she was winding up to go for us big time. And by goodness, she did. And she lived up to expectations. So many, so many storms don't live up to expectations and we're kind of looking back afterwards going what was all that about but she did wreck Agnes did wreck uh, she did, did, did some fabulous when I say fabulous they weren't too fabulous for the people caught in them at the moment in, in, in the moment but the photograph of the tree down on the Grand Parade you just lucky that no one was under that or there wasn't a bus parked or taking people on or taking people off when that tree came down right across there from the Capitol building. There's bus stops and buses everywhere around there. It was an awful looking looking thing. Uh, and it just snapped it. She just snapped it off at the base. And then down in East, and Bantry, now this is always happening in Bantry. People leaving their cars parked down close to the water, as you can, to be fair, most of the time. A photograph in front of me here from Bentry of a car uh, parked where you can always park but just across the road from the Maritime Hotel there and I would hate to be trying to start that car afterwards assuming it even survived and then you went to East Cork you had the, the roof ripped off uh, place in, in Yall that video <clears throat> very spectacular video actually was going around last evening and then there was no look uh, trampolines and playhouses are 
vulnerable at the best of times. I haven't seen a picture like this one since since Ophelia back in 2017. But this is a Achilles playhouse turned upside down. You would hope that they can turn it back up the right way around and a bit of decent carpentry will get it sorted. But it looks like it's in smithereens. But we're lucky that there was no one seriously injured or worse while Agnes was traipsing across us yesterday. Some people were saying last evening on on social that she um, she might sh- might have been upgraded to red. Someone did say as well that if she'd been going through Dublin at that pace and fury, that she would have been updated to red. 0818 96 96 96. She's gone now anyway. The next, I don't know the name. I can't recall what the, the name of the next storm. It's a B anyway. Whatever it is. But it'll be here. It'll be here in the fullness of time. 0818 96 96 96. The number of the text to WhatsApp is 083 396 96 96. And the email is opinion at 96fm.ie. Thanks again to everyone who helped us yesterday with our coverage of Agnes. On days like that, you become part of the production team and your voice notes and your texts and your emails and your WhatsApps. We're very, very welcome. Thank you very much for all of them. Towards the end of the programme, I referred to this story that was in the news of a young teenage schoolgirl who had died and at the time was being assumed as part of a TikTok challenge. There is a challenge on TikTok called chroming. And chroming is the sniffing of aerosols or solvents. And I happened to mention before we got off the air yesterday that this story was in the news. Um, this morning we have her name. Her name was Sarah Meskel. She was 14. She was from County Clare. And she took ill over the weekend. And she died. And there will be an inquest and all these things. But it is strongly suspected that she had been sniffing solvents and that it was part of a TikTok challenge. It's called chroming, or also called huffing. Back in the day, we used to call it sniffing. It was a huge, huge problem in Cork in the 80s. I remember it very well. Um, And uh, we were contacted by uh, Mary. Mary, you'd taken us right back to the early 80s, to the death of your own son, Billy. Um, I, and I, I know it's many years later, but I'm sorry for your last parent to parents. Even now, Mary, um, he was caught up in. And I remember as well at the time he was caught up in a craze here in Cork for sniffing all sorts of things. That's right. Yeah, tell me about him. Tell me what happened. Uh, well, he died in um, April '89. Okay. But uh, I would say he started sniffing sometime. He started in Deer Park in 86, in secondary school, like. And um, shortly after that, I remember, I was kind of naive because I'm originally from the country, like, and I wouldn't have known about these kind of things that went on. He um, he came in a couple of nights smelling a petrol. Yeah. And he told me that he was helping his friend who lived on the same staple further down, uh, that they were fixing the brother's motorbike or something and they had to put petrol into it. And I, I believed him. Yeah. But it was sometime afterwards, I think it was my older daughter said it to me, 
that uh, I think the telltale signs now, I mean, t- I tried to remember things yesterday, it is a long time ago, that, um, you know, there was blisters around his mouth. Yeah. A kind of a rash. And I suppose that would be when they were inhaling the the petrol. But it moved on to different things anyway. Uh, I think I was very popular around here. I'm trying to think of the name of it. It used to be in a, a aerosol. It was hammerite paint. Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Hammerite is right. Of, yeah. Yeah. Because he's come in with this kind of gold or silver. I think it was kind of goldy colour. It would be on his jacket, but it used to wash out the jacket anyway. But like you... If he came in with stains of that, you knew, like, but it was, I was saying it to Purgle yesterday, it was later on, no, he ended up going to school in St. Lawrence's in Dublin, it was kind of an industrial school, yeah. up there. Did he it, sorry, sorry, Mary, before we get there, did, did it affect his his behaviour? Did it affect his, his oh, nature? Oh, it did, it did. I mean, I began to get very nervous of him. Right. You know, we need to come in, like, you know, like someone that would be drunk or high on drugs, you know. And what age was he at uh, this stage? Oh, yeah, uh, I think he was 13, going on 14. He died just before he was 16, anyway. Okay, okay. okay. But, uh, like that, cause only, uh, he was, I suppose, doing it for, when he went to St. Lawrence's, of course, he wasn't doing it. How did he, he end up in St. Lawrence's? I, if I remember rightly, himself and another fella, they robbed a gas meter out of a flat near us and it was for money for to get something to sniff. Okay. Okay. So something small anyway, like, but it should have been a warning sign but, to me, but it wasn't. I didn't realise. Um, but he had, give, they gave, he was clear of, it, of solvents, but about five weeks before he died, he went back on it. But I remember here listening to him and another young fella talking and the different things that they had sniffed yeah. uh, 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 was shocking. Yeah. Not that word, basic household stuff. Yeah. At one stage, wasn't there someone, um, the, the parents' council at the, at the school and one of the teachers uh, came out with a box of stuff, a box That's of... That's right, yeah. And I remember at the time, because I was... What age was I? I was in my late teens at that stage, or well, I was in my in my twenties in the late eighties. So I remember it. I remember it very well. And Tipex, Boyro, pen, pens, felt pens, marker pens, that kind of stuff, like glue, ordinary glue that you'd use to, glue, to fix yeah. the house. Plastic, you'd open a, a packet of yeah, craft glue. glue, yeah, and then. Um, Magic mushrooms. I remember them too, yeah. yeah. Because he came in one day, and like that, he looked for his dad's flask, and he said they were going hunting rabbits. His friend, and his friend was known for hunting rabbits. And he said, oh, I'll take a flask of tea with me, because we might be away a long time. Mm-hmm. And he was back after a couple of hours, an empty flask. And it was only afterwards, before he went back sniffing again, that he told me, I can laugh, no, but I was laughing at the time, uh, that was the way they were using it for, they were putting the magic mushrooms into the tea because you get a higher kick. Yes, yes, yeah. They, they were up to all sorts, and it was every second house and every second oh. teenager. They were all oh, there. yeah. I was trying to come to here last night and I'd say out of this estate which had around two, say 210 houses and a number of flats, 
they would have been 50 or 60 children at least. Mm-hmm. But the funny thing is, the night he died, mm-hmm. it stopped. Just like really? that. Because it took a local death, someone they knew. Because Tell me what happened to him, Mary. Uh, he actually died sniffing a drum of household gas. Ooh. And one of his friends, well, what I would have called a sniffing friend of his, you know, that he would have been caught by the guards a number of times. Now, the guards in Toko were this very good. There should be good. gas like you'd use in the cooker or in a... It's a big drum yeah. of gas. Yeah. And I, that's another story attached to that. But anyway, when his friend realised that he had been missing for quite a while, went looking for him, and when he turned him over, because he was lying face down, the gas was still seeping into him. But the morning after, the, his inquest, which I think was held in July of that year, in the June or July, uh, a guy knocked at the door with the stuff that had been in his pockets and a big drum, I guess. Wow. I said, I kind of laughed. I, I'm fairly cool-headed, like, what. I just saw red, like, and the guard was a young guard. He was only doing what he was told to do. I, I said, get that picking thing out of my sight. And I said, it don't belong to us. More than likely, he himself and uh, whoever he was with had robbed it somewhere. I or bought it between them. But I don't want to. He thought, I suppose, it came in the house. But, you he, know. he was found, was it, Mary, down near the bar's club, was it? That's right. As far as I know, it's kind of over beyond where the pitch and put club, yeah. over by a stream, which you can get on. Is it Headlands Apartments out on Sarsis Road? Yeah, there was a lot of, back in the 80s, there's places that are built on now with housing estates, yeah, but they were wild country. You were, you were there, at the edge yeah. of the country there, like, yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I, like, I mean, nobody would see them, but they, they would have gone in through the bars. Because uh, when his friend found them, he ran over to the bar and it would have been a couple of neighbours from here that actually went over and brought Billy back to where the ambulance could take him up to the hospital. And, and tell me, Mary, was he dead when they found him? Though he was. Uh, I'd say so. Because, like, when we went up to the hospital, which would have been a while after, my husband got there before me because I wasn't at home that night. I was only across the way, like, but uh, when my husband went up and a neighbour with him, they told him to go into the family room. He didn't realise what that meant. I mean, when I heard that, I knew. So um, at the inquest afterwards, the coroner was at Mr. O'Riordan, was it? Connie Reardon? I think it was. Connie Miss O'Riordan. Connie Reardon is right. Yeah. He asked why why were the marks on his arm, and it was actually where they tried to revive him. So he was actually dead when they... You You said to me that the, the sniffing craze... Stopped pretty much there and then. But talk to me about that effect. On what age was he when he died? Uh, he died nineteenth of April, and he would have been sixteen on the twenty fourth of June. He, so he was two months short of his sixteenth birthday. Yeah, he was only a he was only a baby. He wasn't even a chap. That's he was all. Only a baby. What was it like, Mary? I mean, you're you're great talking about it now, you know, and it's forty years ago, but or nearly, but but nearly thirty something. Yeah, thirty something. But like. Must have been devastating, was it? Uh, I don't know because even the night he died, my mother rang my sister in England and she said that she had heard me say over the years, I could never see Billy growing up. 
There was many times sitting here in the front room and I had quite a big family. I mean, there was nine of them all together. And uh, he'd sit up in the arm of the chair and he had a habit of sucking his thumb up to about eight or nine. And you always kind of felt he was sitting up in the arm of the chair because there wouldn't have been room for more than the city anyway. And uh, he was like as if he was looking down or, you know, kind of storing up. I know. I had that. And I had dreamt once or twice of him being in an acting and I had dreamt once of identifying him. And it was I identified him up in the hospital after he died. Were you close, Mary? Uh, well, as close as you can well, be. He was, the, he, was the elder, he was the eldest son. There's two sisters older than him. But I mean, I would, we would have been fairly close to him. And I mean, I went out, we went out searching for him. Like it wasn't the way that he went off at night and I didn't know where he was. My kids were left out after dark until they were about 13 or 14. Mm-hmm. I suppose coming from the country, like there was nothing to do. Not a country, about three miles outside Cope. You didn't go out at night. <laughs> as teenagers. I know. Did you ever try to, or were you able to try to talk to him at the time? Oh, I did. And especially when he, uh, the night that he went back sniffing, it was only five weeks before he died. It was early March anyway. And the guards called and said, like, they had caught him with a drum of gas himself and a couple of other fellas, and they ran away. Because they would bring him home. They were very good. They tried to bring him home, but mm. he'd run away from them. But, uh, like, I kind of said, Billy, we searched all over Carfia before, or, you know, when searching for him when he was missing. And I said, Look, you've heard the risk. There was a young fellow that died in the north side. Mm-hmm. But as far as I know, it was, he died from heart failure. Right. Billy died from the fact that he had flooded his lungs with gas. Mm-hmm. I, remember, I remember the north side case, actually, the chap with the heart failure. I remember that. But, like, when you'd say to him, do you know? What would you, like, oh, what, you know, what would you say to him? Hard to remember now, but like you get the impression, well, it, it's not going to do me any harm. Like, I'm invincible, but I, I think all teenagers think that anyway. They do, they do, they do. All different things, like, so. Must have knocked you for six? Uh, it did for a while, but I think the fact that I kind of, I suppose, was always back of my mind that something would happen to him, do you know? But like, I mean, I had eight other kids to look after. My youngest was only six. I mean, he'd tell you now, he cried at the removal, and you'd ask him now, and he's over 40, why were you crying? Because everybody else was crying, he said. You know, he didn't realise. Yeah, I don't think he really realised. Yeah, his other siblings, you'd nine, my goodness me. Yeah. Like, his other siblings must yeah, have affected, affected them all in different ways, was it? Yeah. Uh, it would have affected, I think, the brother nearest to an age who would have uh, gone sniffing with him a few times. But the funny thing is, Billy would always have kind of sent him home. Mm. Do you know? Mm. Like I'd say, maybe he did realise in, in the back of his head it could cause, back mm. of his mind, that it would have caused problems. But um, no, like I think the younger ones, and uh, one thing that sticks out, and I always say, his tour, or the the third youngest, who's still living here and, uh, with us, he, uh, I remember when I came back from the hospital that night, Billy was dead at this stage, like we had even the funeral arrangements started out with his dad's brother and sister who paid for the funeral. Uh, Billy sat up in the bed and he said to me, is Billy all right? Mm-hmm. And I said, he is, because I had no intention of waking 
the other younger ones at that hour of the night, like I was saying, well, you can wait till morning. And a couple of, uh, he told me a couple of weeks afterwards, he said, you told me a lie the night Billy died. Yeah. Because I always kind of told him the truth might be a water down truth. It was something serious. Like, mm-hmm. But that stuck in my mind for years. You told me a lie the night Billy died. How did you deal with it, Mary? Well, you just had to get up and get on with it. Mm. And I'm not a person for sitting down crying anyway. And what I found was if I could uh, find myself, you know, kind of thinking deeply about it or getting uptight about it, I've always been able to kind of change my mind or divert my mind to something else. And I mean, there would have been plenty to keep me going here anyway. But with that, that size of family, absolutely, you'd have been amazing. Yeah. You just couldn't sit down and cry and be sorry for yourself. And I mean, I've always heard the saying, cry and you cry alone, smile and the world smiles with you. Indeed, indeed, indeed. Um, When you heard me, I think it was me or anybody else, referring yesterday then to this new chroming, or huffing is another name for it, but chroming craze and TikTok, I think that prompted you to pick the phone up to us. Oh, it did. The minute I heard you saying it, uh, chroming, TikTok, but then when you said uh, sniffing or whatever, you said the word aerosol, I think. It's what I actually am saying. Oh my God, don't tell me this. Because it did start here, I think, around 10 years ago. There was a couple of girls who had kind of died of death straight away. But I did hear that it had been... It's the things, we still don't know what this young girl, Sarah... Had been I know that, I know, I know. Some kind of an aerosol, but, but it could have been anything right. from a hairspray to an underarm deodorant. Any whole, yeah, any household thing. And I know they, they changed a lot of stuff in the late 80s. A lot of the manufacturers changed. Oh, they, 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 they had a little thing on it, hadn't they? Kind of a triangle and thing. That's right. Yeah. They did, and they, had, they took certain chemicals out of them, that, the strong smell, but, yeah... Yes, even you now, know even now you can buy glue. You, you, you buy certain glues, and that strong smell comes up. Out oh, of it. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, I, I mean, I've used that Evo stick. Was it you used to be? Evo stick or boss stick? I, oh, yeah, that, yeah. It was only last year I was using some Evo stick glue or boss stick glue to repair something at home, and I needed a lot of glue, and I was just put, oh, there's that smell. And you know what I remember, Mary, from the time from being a young fella at the time. I remember, even though I never indulged myself, I knew people who did. I remember the smell. Remember the smell. Yeah, and I remember smell. being in school and fellas, we all used Tipex. Do you know? But, uh, yeah, but well, Billy told me that, uh, and his friend that time that we were talking about it, that Tipex gave them terrible pains down their legs, in their limbs. Get away. That, that's why most of them wouldn't uh, sniff that very often, or they gave it up because. Uh, it gave them, I think, ter- uh, pains in their limbs, yeah, their legs in particular. Lighter, lighter fuel was another one when fellas would be filling their That's lighters. Right. Yeah. Yeah. But, like, what uh, really was telling me over the time, uh, hallucinations. Mm. Would, they all would get the same kind of one. Some people, like, he'd tell me that, uh, particularly young fella, I haven't identified the young fella, no, no, no. Uh, that he, you'd often see his hands, there would be scratches on the back of his hand, and his dream was that the devil was chasing or something, and he was digging the ground to kind of get away from the devil, or, you know, things like that, but the same kind of dreams people would keep getting. Well, not, uh, nightmares, I suppose. 
From someone who has been there and, and suffered the consequences through the loss of your wonderful boy, and I'm sure he was a wonderful boy, do you know, even with, with all that was going on for him. I'm sure well, he was, was stubborn, fan. but he was... And he was, he was 16, that was his job. Stubborn and 16 kind of go together. Oh, a typical 16-year-old, and he knew, he knew best himself, like. But, like, I mean... Uh, he had a heart to go. Even when he was in Dublin, no one said Lawrence's. He made a, he was his hands. He made a, a, what do you call it, a cot, a dad's cot for really? his sister. And we actually had a little, uh, we lived next door, uh, and he did a number plate for the house. Now it's mm. falling apart. We left that house because of a house fire in 95. Mm. And, uh, and the number plate was up in it, but someone, when somebody was leaving it there about five or six years ago, I asked one of the workmen, uh, would you ever take that off the wall and give it to me? Mm. And uh, like that, no, it's falling apart. No, it was... Uh, you still have it, it's precious. Yeah, my husband had it upside down there one day, and he was saying, I should have that was a bit of time. I said, no, you're there. That's the last thing that he made for the house. Do you know what, Mary, as we speak now... There's stuff coming in, yeah, uh, from all over the city. That it's it's happening again. It's oh happening God. again, and yeah. and people are reporting to us here, and I'll read some of them in a minute. But they it, are. Go, it will keep going now until someone local dies again. Petrol, glue, lighter yeah, fuel, the usuals. And it, I think the thing is, like for parents, and you're. Watch your kids is the advice to parents, but it's so hard to spot because of the stuff in the house that they can... Yeah, it could be anything. Like I mean, they could be taking anything out of the house because, as you said, that, that meeting that was organised up in Deer Park, no one, they brought in the, stu- the box of stuff. Mm. Now, I mean, I would have been well aware of nearly all the things that they could have sniffed. But that morning, mm. I was involved in the parents' council in Deer Park at the time, and I just had one look at the box and I burst out crying. Because of all the things that were in it? It was just because, like, you know, well, it took me back. And I knew it would have had an effect on me. But it was just looking at the ordinary things that are in any household. Especially under the, under the sink kind of thing. Windoline? Jay's fluid? Oh, like when, to just when you see how ordinary they were and how they could cause a death, like. Yeah. You know? Yeah, the TikTok thing frightens you. Just before we finish, the the TikTok thing frightens you because you made a great point when you're talking to Fergal. You made a great point. You said kids want approval from their peers. And if you go on TikTok, you get this chance of approval from kids all over the world. I know. No, I'm not on TikTok myself, but I do know how it operates. Like, yeah, and a few of my, few of my kids, grandkids, and my, nearly my great grandkids, uh, wouldn't know how to use TikTok. How many grandchildren have you? I have seventeen, and another one on the way, and eight <laughs> great grandchildren. Fair play to you, woman. Fair <laughs> play to you, Mary O'Riordan. Do you mind me asking? Because I've really enjoyed chatting. What age are you? Uh, I was 75 last week. Well, you know what? You're carrying it well. Fair play to you. If you saw me now, you mightn't think so because I was in hospital 
I was in hospital during the summer, and I only get around the house now with a rollator for the moment. But hey, listen, Mrs. You're still getting around. Too. You're, still, yeah, getting getting you're around. still getting around. And that I, young... listen, I listen to all picking line. Good for you, girl. And that young fella's still watching you from way yeah. up, wherever he is. I know. Mary, listen, great talking to you, and uh, I wish you continued good health and recovery. But Mary lost her boy, Billy, uh, nearly 40 years ago to sniffing. It was gas, eventually. But he was sniffing everything. He would sniff anything. Sniff Tipex. I don't, I don't know if anybody still uses Tipex, to be honest. But Tipex, Bostic, Evostic, hairspray, deodorant, window lean, Jay's Fluid, any number of different cleaning products. They're all there. They're all under the sink. And every, any single one of them could kill you. And we are getting messages in. We're getting messages in from people. It's, 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 it's here again. And as Mary is saying, it'll continue now again until someone else dies. We've already had one death from it. Sarah Meskel up in County Clare. Let's hope we don't get someone in Cork, eh? 0818 96 96 96 Join the conversation This is the Opinion Line With Hidden Hearing Focused solely on your hearing health for over 35 years They're all ears Visit hiddenhearing.ie Cork's 96 FM Oldies and Irish On Cork's 96 FM Is the big Sunday show on your radio Turn it up and take it easy with the best music mix for your Sunday morning. Sunday morning. Welcome along to the program. Lovely to be with you on a Sunday morning. Oldies and Irish with Derry O'Callaghan. Sundays, 10 a.m. to 2 p.m. With Cork Simon. Anne wants to give everyone the home that Cork gave her. She's leaving a gift in her will to Cork Simon. Find out more at CorkSimon.ie. Cork's 96 FM. Come back to Chroming because trust me when I tell you there's a lot of it going on judging by the messages that are coming in to me this morning on all of our various platforms. Also looking at the news of the day, a possibility, strong possibility, that the guards may walk off the job on budget day. That's that's becoming a more stronger possibility by the day. I'll get to that and loads more. Earlier in the week, we started off the week actually talking about groups of people campaigning outside the gates of schools and handing out documentation and leaflets uh, about the relationships and sexuality program. And it's stepped up a gear now because there's a group promoting or purporting to represent parents who are organising meetings opposing the new relationships and sexuality program. And they claimed in Dublin anyway to be connected to the ETB, the Education Board. They're not. They're not. The Education Board has spoken. No, they've nothing to do with us. But actually, there's a Christian fundamentalist group was found to be involved with one of these meetings. But they are continuing. And they oppose the teaching in schools of issues to do with relationships and sexuality and issues like gender identity and the whole thing. And there are... I don't think there's been a meeting in Cork yet, but certainly they're looking to plan one. I spoke in August with Pam O'Leary, who's a guidance counsellor and a teacher at Cork Educate Together and was involved in the development of of this new programme, and I had your teaching notes and read them uh, earlier. Pam, this is worrying, these groups and these meetings setting up. Good morning. Some of them, some people have seen terrible things here. Yeah, I mean, it is worrying because I suppose the meeting that was held the other evening in Dublin um, was not what they stated that it would be, you know. They were sending it out as an ETB 
um, an NCCA sponsored event. Um, they were using branding from the ATV and the NCCA and they made it look really legitimate. And a lot of innocent, unwitting parents and innocent, unwitting teachers were sharing it on social media platforms when actually what it turned out to be was um, a sermon and a, you know, a very misleading and inappropriate um, use of time. Um, they were billing it as being endorsed yeah. by the education authorities yes. when in fact it had nothing to do yes. with them. No, no, it hasn't. And they've come out strongly to say that they have nothing to do with it because the p- curriculum has already been approved by the ETB. It's already it's already rolled out in schools. So, the you know, that horse is bolted. Like there's no, the consultation has already happened over the last four years with parents, teachers, students and the wider community. Mm. There were over, I think it was over 80 submissions from different, including churches and different religious organizations, communities, that work has already been done and the agreement has been made. This and as you and I here, already discussed, Pam, yeah. having read, now you sent me your yeah. teaching notes and in fairness, it's all a draft that you sent me, but even reading, yeah. there's all the things that they're talking about and the things that they're claiming, they're not Yes, They're false claims, PJ, totally because, claims. you know, totally false. And if any, any parent and any parent that's listening who feels a little bit scared by this information like that they're reading, they should just go online and have a look at the curriculum. You know, it's 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 all there for everyone to see. There's nothing controversial in it, in it at all. In fact, I you know, I think it's quite, it's been through many filters. I think it could be a little bit stronger in the sex education area. But look, we listen to everyone. Yeah. We try to understand everybody's concerns. Also, their religious beliefs and their ideas around different areas. That was all taken into account already. It's just the misinformation that's being sent out, the scaremongering. Mm. The, it, it's, it's really difficult because I do worry about people showing up outside of schools. You know, I do. Um, it hasn't happened in Cork that I'm aware of. But we've, it, two, we've two reports. Dublin. We've two reports of it yeah. happening. And I was talking to Joe from Cork, Cork Bio on, on Monday and he was telling me that yeah. two group, two schools in particular have been affected by yeah. this. And there'd been one, one very angry dad had confronted some of these people you know, yeah. but what they were handing out, and and his friends just said, "Look, mm. back away. They're not. They're not worth it." Some terrible things are being said. Did someone tell a meeting that teachers are predators? Yes. Wow. Yes. Yeah. Uh, I mean, it was. It was. It was. Seemed like a sermon. You know, very. It was. And this is not like I have many um, Christian teacher friends and Catholic teacher friends who are actually mortified by by this development. They they don't agree with it, but it was kind of quoting from scriptures and saying things like predators should be drowned, and then mentioning teachers in the next sentence to make it appear. You know, it's not hate speech, but it's by association, you know, that, that things should happen to teachers because they're teaching this curriculum and maintaining that we're predators or that we're, you know, have bad interests at heart when it comes to teaching children, you know, and that's, that's, that's very scary rhetoric. It's, it's, um, you know, it, it, when you listen to it, it is. Now, at the same time, what I did notice is that they didn't have a single person, single teacher, single principal, no speaker at all from education, you know, no, no one. You know, which is interesting for an education information evening. Now, there's, there's no one from education is speaking. There's no sign of any of these meetings being organised locally, but one assumes that it will happen in the fullness of time. Yeah. Um, and and your yeah. advice to parents is this has nothing to do with the education board or an or any parents, any legitimate no. education body. 
No, and any any SPHE curriculum, it's it's under the ethos and um, guidelines in the board of management of your own school. So if you have an issue, if you if you're worried about some aspect of the curriculum, your first port of call is the school to ask. You know, can you tell me a little bit more about it? You know, tell me the curriculum. What are, what's being taught? Can I speak to the teacher? That's that's within your rights. It's also within your rights to withdraw your child from SPHE or or other subjects if you feel it doesn't meet what your beliefs your or your moral standards are that's in the constitution so that is that that's the proper way to follow the channels not by organizing mm. protests outside schools or you know organizing meetings that have nothing to do with education mm. another favorite I, I would say a favorite myth but i'm sure you know why i'm choosing those words a favorite myth that's going around is that children are being told in class don't tell your parents now about this don't tell your parents Wow. Yeah, I mean, that's that I, I don't understand that claim. I don't understand where it could have come from, because actually all the information on SPHE is on is on should be on the school website exactly. or at least you get uh, an app no, notification or an email from the school um, li- outlining the curriculum, telling you what's on it. You know, it's all very transparent and accessible for parents. You know, so I don't really understand where that's coming from. It's coming from it's coming from minds. Coming from the depth of somebody's mind, Pam, I guess. Listen, thank you very much for that. Pam O'Leary, guidance counsellor and teacher with the Cork Educate Together and was involved in devising teaching notes for the new SPHE curriculum programme. Yeah, and I've read her teaching notes in detail and she sent me a lot of more information about the draft of what is actually in there and what's been claimed by these people handing out leaflets and what's been claimed by the people holding these meetings and being put up on social media videos of this is supposed to be happening and that's supposed to be happening to you. No, your children are not being told any of those things. Nonsense. 0818 96 96 96. Join the conversation. This is the Opinion Line. With Hidden Hearing, changing lives with the latest hearing health technology. They're all ears. Visit hiddenhearing.ie. Cox 96 now, we are weeks away from a serious crisis in Angarda Siakana. I don't know if you have been following this row over rosters. Garda rostering is very, very well organised. Always has been. I remember when my dad was in the guards, God rest him. He knew now, in, say, September, what he was working over Christmas. He knew practically up to next St. Patrick's Day what he was working, what his roster was, what his hours was, his days on, his days off, and whatever. It's a very well-structured thing. There's a huge row going on in the guys now over rostering. And they've threatened, the Garda Representative Association, which is the biggest association representing Garda, they've threatened now that they will do everything pretty much short of walk off the job on Budget Day. They're, they voted to uh, refuse voluntary overtime in October on the 3rd, the 10th, which is Budget Day, 17th, 24th and 31st. And then by November 10th, if this row over rosters isn't sorted out, they will go on strike. Now, they can't, Gardy can't strike, but they would all fall in sick, which is why they're now calling it the Drew Flu. Because Drew Harris, the commissioner, has refused point blank to budge on this roster row. Joined by Cormac O'Keefe, uh, crime correspondent, the examiner. Cormac, serious situation. One assumes 
that over the next few weeks they'll be working furiously in the background to avoid this happening. But can you explain for people the story with the rosters? Good morning. Uh, good morning. Um, yeah, I mean, a new um, emergency roster was brought in in March 22 to deal with COVID and the restrictions that were um, part of the state's response. That replaced a previous roster. So the COVID roster is guards essentially work four days uh, on a 12-hour shift, and then they have four days off. Mm-hmm. The old system was they worked um, six days on, over 10 hours, and then they had four days off. Now, did GRA say, um, well, they say a number of things, but one, that their members prefer the current system, um, mainly for work-life balance reasons. It suits them um, an awful lot better than the previous roster. Um, secondly, they, I suppose that there's, they work more on social hours in the current roster, so there's additional uh, allowances for that. And then thirdly, um, they say that they're unlike two or three years ago when they say there was enough Gardaí to work the old roster. They now say that because Gardaí numbers have gone down, that there isn't enough members to work um, the roster that will be introduced on the 6th of November. Yeah, that's the deadline that Drew Harris has put in place and he's not for budging on it. So presently, since COVID came... Presently, they are working four 12-hour days and then the four days off. Drew Harris has ordered them to go to, is it six 10-hour days and then four days off? Yeah. God almighty. Yeah, that's Cormac, essentially, six yeah, that's, that's days, essentially it. Six 10-hour days in a row. I don't know about you, but that would kill me. Yeah, well, I, I wouldn't fancy working work. four 12-hour shifts in a row either, um, yeah. <laughs> to be honest with you. Uh, that's a really long day. Uh, I think it does tweak. I think it's a shorter day on Sunday than the other days, but it averages out as as ten hours over over the the six days. Um, but uh, what I was going to say, but yes, I mean he has made the decision that on the sixth of November the guards are going to return to the previously agreed roster, and they make the point. Well, the GRA had agreed to the previous roster. But now they're not, mm. and the guard guard management will say, "Well, we've had three years of negotiations to try and get a replacement, and we haven't succeeded." So he referred us to the to the workplace relations commission. Mm. Uh, but the GRA um, want uh, currently what they what they want essentially is the commissioner to defer the decision, uh, the sixth of November decision, until talks can take place. Mm-hmm. But they are saying that the commissioner is saying that the, the roster is going to change on the 6th of November regardless of the talks. Mm-hmm. So we're in... We're, now bear in mind, uh, this is the GRA the who moment. last week or the week before and how many members of them, it has 10,500 members or something, voted 98% yeah. of them voted no confidence in Drew Harris. So... This is an association and a guy, the commissioner, that aren't getting on at the best of times. No, I mean, there, there, an, an awful lot has happened. I mean, the decision by the GRA to, to have a vote of no confidence in the commissioner was, I suppose, a major step in their behalf. It, it definitely ratcheted up the tension between them and the guard commissioner. I mean, it was fairly personalised and directed at the commissioner to have a vote of no confidence in, which is unprecedented in force. It has no legal standing, but obviously it's unprecedented to hold 
such um, a ballot. And then, as you say, overwhelmingly, almost 99% voted no confidence in the commissioner. He described that as a kick in the teeth. So I think the result of that um, hardened positions, and then we had a, a, a meeting um, earlier this week, and we had very strong statements from the GRA General Secretary saying it was a waste of time, and he felt the relations were now almost irreparably uh, damaged. Now, something else. And then we have the GRA decision yesterday regarding the, the action. The GRA is not a union. Uh, it, it, it has negotiating powers, I think, within Congress, but, but it's not actually a union. So, and, and Gardaí are also expressly, I believe, they were anyway in my dad's time, expressly forbidden to strike. So talk of a strike yeah. on November 10th is talk of something they legally can't do anyway. Yeah, well, we're going back to the original, I suppose, blue foot blue flu where they will call in sick essentially and mm. uh, that's the action that will be taken on the 10th of November. Now I suppose by the letter the decision uh, that they made yesterday was um, uh, there will be no voluntary overtime as you say on the five Tuesdays including budget day also including Halloween which is a very busy busy day and busy night and then from the 6th of November that the delegates themselves, that's the 31 delegates who essentially uh, direct the GRA, they themselves uh, say they will remain on their current COVID roster on that day. And they say that on the 10th, that the delegates will withdraw their labour. So they're careful in how they word it. They're not saying all members will, but the, the signals and the comments from the GRA leadership is that they expect that members or at least a significant percentage of them will follow the lead the, of their delegates. Let's face it, Cormac, the delegates are the most yeah. senior members of the GRA and you're delegated to represent your your colleagues' interests. Yeah. They know so the temperature, they know the mood, yeah. uh, they have the result of the no-confidence vote. So they they obviously do feel that, that the bulk or the vast bulk of members will, will follow their lead. I'm a long time watching um, industrial relations Cormac, and I, and I make this point repeatedly when we get to stage like this, this will be sorted. It just has to be sorted without anybody losing face. There's, there's a bit of time, a small bit of time to avoid this. Mm. Are there efforts going on behind the scenes that we don't know about, do you think? I, I, of course there are. I'm sure within senior levels of the Department of Justice there, 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 are, there are efforts. But um, the positions are entrenched. It is the Garda's commissioner's uh, powers. It's his remit to decide, make decisions on, on rosters. But we don't want a situation, I think the last time was back in 2016, where was, there was 11th hour intervention That's to right. prevent a similar that. Uh, dispute from happening. And was that literally at the last minute. You know, ideally, we don't want that kind of situation where it's coming up to budget day we have various protests being planned. There's not going to be enough Gardaí to man the barricades all day and all night. Uh, we don't want that situation. So there needs to be an intervention, whether it's directly from the minister, whether it's from the policing authority who are meeting the commissioner today, or a combination of both. But the, the only way out of this, given the two entrenched positions, is some external intervention um, by the government or the policing authority or, or some other body. Ministers are usually loath 
I mean, to to get involved in these things. Yeah. Policing authorities, I don't know what their record is like around the world, but but they could, could they not say to to Drew Harris today, Commissioner, back off here a small bit. Could, they could, couldn't they? Well, they they could certainly um, tease out what is going to happen if no um, no shift is 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 taken by either party. I mean, they they can see what's coming down the tracks. Mm. So you would imagine in their, they have a private meeting first. So you'd imagine they would be able to trash out exactly what's ahead of us. That will be followed by a public meeting later. To, what would happen usually is the, the authority chair will give the commissioner an opportunity to make a speech at the beginning and maybe make some comments about this current issue. Maybe he will, and maybe there'll be some movement. The authority mm. might, might then ask him questions in public about it. So he'll be put under some kind of, um, yeah. put under the spotlight at least on it. Yeah, it seems to be one of the few options available. As you say, minister, the minister would be would be reluctant to get directly involved, but somebody will have somebody to. Somebody has to. Somebody has to, because the first day, I mean, next Tuesday is the 3rd of October. So yeah. somebody has to do something ahead of next Tuesday, or else the first day of action will happen. Cormac, thank you. Cormac O'Keefe, examiner, crime correspondent. Gardaí threatening, the GRA threatening to refuse overtime from next Tuesday and then to go on strike, to call in sick in mass numbers from the 10th of November. But no overtime on budget day. You can imagine what might happen then. Go back to last week. Go back to what we were talking about, about the scenes outside the doll and the Gardaí involved there. Can you imagine if there were no Gardaí there to police that situation on budget day? It is unthinkable, to be fair. Join the conversation. This is the Opinion Line. With Hidden Hearing, focused solely on your hearing health for over 35 years. They're all ears. Visit hiddenhearing.ie. Cork's 96 FM. The minds are live. Join the conversation. Call 0818 96 96 96. Text or WhatsApp 083 396 96 96. Email opinion at 96fm.ie. This is the Opinion Line with PJ Coogan. 96FM. We're getting a lot of response to Mary. I spoke to Mary in the first hour this morning about the chroming craze that has already claimed one life, the life of young Sarah from County Clare. Sarah Lanigan, I think was her name, from County Clare. And she was 14 and she died after inhaling an aerosol. That's all we know. Mary told me the story of her son, Billy, who died in 1989. He wasn't even 16 years old. He was sniffing. He sniffed anything for a few years. There was a big craze and eventually was sniffing gas, cooking gas. And he died um, back in 1989. She was saying that crazes like this tend to continue until somebody does die. Because that's what happened back in their estate in Toker in 89. After Billy died, it stopped because people got afraid. Maybe maybe the death of young Claire, or young, young Sarah rather, might, might scare people. But we're getting pages and pages of messages in ever since. And it's rampant. My son is doing it. There's a craze of sniffing helium as well. It's down to the paramedics and their skills that there's not more people dead. And it's not just in the 80s that people were sniffing petrol. That's happening still. I woke up one morning, there was a canister of gas delivered to the front door. 
Out walking the other day, I saw a young man doing the balloon with a canister between his legs. A huge thing, almost his own height. I don't know what doing the balloon is, but I'm almost afraid to think. Uh, my own son is now on cannabis edibles as well. They're unbelievable. And they're worse the mental state they leave you in. Up in Ocknahini, there was a young fella out of it. And people passing by had to sit on him until he calmed down. People think it's a harder drug, but actually it's from sniffing, sniffing, or from edibles. It's all a huge game, says another message. The dealers are booking rooms in hotels and Airbnbs for helium parties. There's fellas coming down from Dublin selling boxes of canisters. Sometimes they then come after the families for the money that's owed. Pay it or get petrol bombed is what they're being told. And the guys will tell you off the record, you're better off just paying because they can't protect you 24 hours a day. Like your caller, I'm a country girl. It's the likes of us get affected worse because we're not aware. We're not streetwise. And our kids pick it up at school or online. That was kind of all one message. Uh, I read it as a number of them, but you get the message from it. There's loads more of them. Loads, loads more of them. It, it is it is scary. I'd like your thoughts as well on the, the so-called Drew flu. So guards currently work four 12-hour shifts and then they have four days off. From the 6th of November, Drew Harris has ordered that they work six days in a row, probably around 60 hours in total, and then they have four days off. And they don't want to go back to that. I would have thought that a 60-hour week is too much for anybody. Really? But, but, um, your thoughts on it? Guards threatening now to withdraw their labour fully on the 10th of November, but to stop doing overtime. And among the days they stopped doing overtime would be Budget Day, which would leave a huge shortage of guards outside the door. Doing the balloon, I'm told, is filling a balloon with helium and breathing it in and breathing it out. Thank you for that. 0818 96 96 96. Uh, on the Drew Flu. How many people have a job with four days on, four days off? That can't be a solution, especially when there's such a shortage of guards. Are they for real? It just can't be the solution. I know a lot of them work very hard, but that can't surely be the solution. I don't know whether it can or not, caller, but I certainly... You have to feel for a guard. 60 hours over six days. That's a heavy working week, like. That's a very hard working week, given the nature of being a guard. 0818 96 96 96. Now, public transport. We've been getting a lot of messages in the last while, and I'll be talking to Kay shortly about problems with the 220. Not going where it's supposed to go, and, and children being left, or young people in particular, being left stranded because the bus isn't going where they thought it was going to go, and that's just one of the problems. But um, Susan Lanigan of the Green Party down in Cove. Susan, you say you're not you're not someone for taking to social media for complaining about things like the bus, which you did the other day. What happened to you? Morning. Good morning, PJ. Oh Lord, <laughs> it was a bit of a saga. Um, I don't know if people have heard my previous clip, but I am finishing up cancer treatment, so mm. I just had a follow up appointment with the uh, radiation oncology clinic. So um, that was all fine. I Because Storm Agnes was coming, um, I wasn't going to cycle in this time. And we decided that even driving might be a bit risky. So I would take the train in and then the bus to the hospital. 
So I left at 9.30. I got in at 10 o'clock. The appointment was at 11, so I'd left an hour. Uh, I figured that would surely be enough time for even the slow-running buses to cross the city into mm. CUH. Um, but, what what um, bus were you thinking of getting? I believe the number is 214. Okay. Um, I just went... To, I know that there's a lot of buses that go to CUH and they leave outside a um, a stop at Kent Station. Um, so there was a whole lot of people waiting in the shelter. I joined them and the display said one was due in about a minute and then there was one in another, I think, 11 minutes and then a third one after that. And then a bus came, but it had a big zero in the front and it just sailed on past us. And so I waited for the... The display did not acknowledge uh, that it wasn't an actual bus, just cleared it off the display. And uh, then the, I waited for the next one, which was due, but they just kept adding on minutes to the time and nothing was happening. And it was 20 past and nothing was happening. And then it was 10.33 and still nothing had happened. And So um, you're standing, this is the bus stop now that's actually inside in the train station. Yeah, it's not inside. It's just outside. It's near the Dean Hotel. Um, oh, okay. Just, um, now I now I have you. And, and yeah, like, yeah, yeah, yeah. Where, where the lifts are and the yeah. electric bikes. Yeah. Are, yeah. Not sorry, the TFI bikes. Yeah. And um, so at about twenty-five to eleven, I thought, well, I have no idea from the display of when this bus is going to turn up. And I think I'd be. I checked on Google, and I and it was going to be an hour's walk. And I just thought, well, the weather's cleared up a bit, so I'll just go for it. And it was it was windy, raining slightly, so off I went, and um, I got as far as College Road, which is actually a good way, but it started to bucket down, and I just and I couldn't. The phone was so wet, I couldn't ring through to the um, to the uh, cancer centre to tell them I was delayed, and I was just stressed. I was wet. I was miserable, and I just thought. Why can't we have a public transport service like a bus that actually is geared for the people it serves? You know, why do I, a well, I suppose I'm no longer technically a cancer patient, but pretty much still a cancer mm. patient. Yeah. Why do I have to get soaking wet, crossing the city, going to the hospital because I couldn't get a bus that was hospital bound. So I felt very sorry for myself. I stopped in, had a had a had a coffee and uh, some and some pastries. Good for um, you. Be, be took to Twitter in a fit of self-pitying rage. And um, I, I got some lovely messages. Somebody, a, a lovely gentleman actually was nearby and offered to um, give me a lift. I, I know the person, they're utterly trustworthy. And I would have said yes. But by the time I got the message, I was actually just at a Glasheen Road. And okay. I think there was much of a muchness by car or and uh, the weather had cleared up by then. So, so Susan, you know, was, cancer patient or, or not, you know, you, you wanted to get from the train station, to the hospital. It's supposed to be a frequent, well-served bus route. The 214 is a very busy bus route. There's an awful lot of buses mm-hmm. on it. I know if I want mm-hmm. to go from here out to where my daughter works, I jump on a 214, and there's one about every 15 or 16 minutes from, from Patrick Street. But the point that yeah. you're making, and you're a member of the Green Party, and your party and your minister... Minister for Transport, Eamon Ryan, would want us to take more public transport. And we'd all like to take more public transport. But as you're discovering now, it ain't that reliable. Well, the way I felt, PJ, was to be quite honest, I could be, I could feel disrespected and of no value by a public transport system not designed to serve people 
or I could get in my nice warm dry Volkswagen Golf and take the ring road out there and you know park and all that kind of thing mm. and you know I was regretting that I hadn't mm. driven and you're right it is terrible that people would rather you know at a pinch would rather drive than uh, use the public transport because it's so unreliable and I think as well PJ there's 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 also a case for if things like that happen for you know people to be treated like you know that they matter and they're important like if somebody come around maybe and said look here's a look we're sorry about this uh, delay of more than half an hour here's a voucher you can have a cup of coffee you can have the pastry you can just um you know a little something just to acknowledge what we were all dealing with like because mm. i was so stressed because having to worry about whether i'd get to the clinic in time you know every as it happened it was grand but you know, yeah, just, I know. I mean, and one of the reasons it was grand and i'll i'll have money on it with you, Susan, if you're a betting lady. The, one of the reasons it was so grand was because the, the hospital are probably well used to people telling them that when they come in. Yeah, probably. <laughs> Do you know? Yeah, yeah. Which isn't good enough. Yeah. At a time when, and again, this is not a, a pop at your party, you're a member of the Green Party. At a time when we, a government party in particular, encouraging us to use more public transport, asking us, to leave the car at home, take the bus, cycle or walk. Now, whatever about cycling or walking, taking the bus, it needs to be reliable. It is cheap. Fair play. It is cheap with the with the leap card. Now, the city buses are very mm. cheap, but it is cheap, but it ain't reliable. Well, I think it's a mindset thing, PJ. I think that you know, for a long time, and I think you know, when you have a when you have minority of Greens in a local authority, it's hard to kind of push for this change of mind. But we've kind of seen we have a Margaret Thatcher mentality in that anyone who's taken the bus after the age of thirty has failed at life, which is nonsense, of course. And you know, we just need to kind of we need well, from to one see, failure to another. We, hello, <laughs> hello. <laughs> from one failure to another, hello. I tell you, well, maybe maybe being a cancer patient is a is a failure at life. I don't know. Stop, stop it. I know, Susan. I know, but, but there you are. Like, and I know the two one four. I can see the message coming in already. The oh, 214. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know? The thing is, what I wanted to say really was that we don't see public transport as a nice thing that we deserve to have in good quality, that we deserve to take seriously. Mm. You know, it's kind of, it's just too easy to go in the car and the car is our default nice thing. But a car isn't actually that nice a thing. No. And I think to be fair to uh, my party colleagues, they've been pushing and pushing for bus connects uh, to try and improve the flow of traffic. Mm-hmm. But I also think that there's other things that can be done as well because there wasn't that much traffic that day. I think mm-hmm. I think just a more people-centered service needs to happen, and the the people's feelings needs to be taken into account. People need to feel that they're respected, you yeah. know, and just um, treated properly. That's mm-hmm. and that would be uh, that would go a long way, I think, in the meantime before right. we finally get bus connects going. And um, yeah. I'm happy to know that your 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 treatment has been a success. Are you are you are you, are you out the gap with regard to the cancer? Uh, yeah, I'm done active treatment. Yes, I'm beyond maintenance now, and um, Good for you. so back to work and back with the rest of my life, I guess. Good for you. All right, Susan. Thank you, Susan Lanigan of uh, the Green Party in Cove, but a cancer patient, and she gets the train to town, and she said she get the bus out of the hospital. It should be seamless in a modern city with a modern public transport system. It should be seamless. She gets the train up from Cove 
right into town. All she should need to do is toddle around the corner, stand at the bus stop, tap the leap card, and away which out of the hospital. It should be simples. But as she discovered, uh-uh, not quite the case. Join the conversation. This is the Opinion Line. With Hidden Hearing, changing lives with the latest hearing health technology. They're all ears. Visit hiddenhearing.ie. Now, as well as talking to, to, to Susan there, we have had quite a number of people contact us. It happens from time to time about the 220, which is the bus, the first 24-hour bus in the country and the bus that goes from Ballincollig to Crosshaven. That's the the extent of bus all the way down from Ballincollig to Crosshaven, through the city, through Carrigline, through Douglas. You know yourself. It's a great service. I use it a lot. But it seems beset with all sorts of problems, particularly at the two ends of it, either in Ballincollig or in Carrigaline. And that's turned up on the Carrigaline Facebook pages, the Carrigaline Notice Board and, and things like that. Uh, Kay, Kay, there are a few problems, aren't there, with the with the 220. And, and you posted this about this on, on the Facebook pages. There, there are numerous problems with the 220 at the Carrigaline end. Good morning. Good morning, uh, PJ, yes. Um, it's been a problem for a long time. Um, I, the way I see it, there's more than um, just one problem with it, really. Um, I've heard that they're very sh- uh, short of drivers. That's one thing. So that would explain some of the gaps, some of the closing down, we're going away, and um, the lateness. But the, some of the other problems are that, um, and people responded to my post there on Facebook, um, their children are asking, are we going to Fountainstown because that's where we live? And the driver would be saying, yes, we're going to Fountainstown. And then um, turning around in Carolina and just heading back to town. So, and, it's, and several people had said that on that post, that um, the actual drivers are actually not telling the truth to people. Let's go through a couple of the problems as they seem to arise. Deal with that one first. The bus is supposed to go all the way down through Carrigaline, on down. Sometimes it goes into Crosshaven, other times it goes up to Fountainstown, other times it goes up to Camden. Uh, can you tell which is going where from the, from the bus itself? Mm-hmm. Uh, you can't. Uh, sometimes, I have I seen Fountainstown written on. I might have done, but sometimes uh, PJ doesn't even go as far as that. It only goes as far as Carrigaline, and people do know that, and that's okay, especially in the evening times or lesser times. There's less going to Crosshaven, but if the people ask the bus driver, "Are you going as far as Fountainstown on this bus?" and he says yes, and then he turns around and doesn't go, doesn't actually say well, it's only going to Carrigaline. I see. So it's it's not always going to the other ends like Fountainstown or indeed to Crosshaven or Camden. It's not. It's not. No. It's not always going. It's not always going that far. No. I see. And you, you no indication. You say until until you actually get onto the bus. You know, indication sometimes until you ask the bus driver. Right, and its youngsters are getting caught up in this. Yeah, youngsters are getting caught up, I think, because it turns around sometimes in the primary care centre. I've seen comments saying, oh, it was the middle of the night time, and um, there's someone there that they knew that they're kind of being dropped off in the night time at the primary care centre when yeah. they thought they were carrying on to Fountainstown. I see. Now, you have a young lad yourself that takes this bus quite frequently, and there are problems out at the Bishopstown side or the Model Farm Road side with students. Well... So far, so good. He hasn't, apart from the bus with the single decker and overcrowded and people vomiting and gagging on it from the heat coming in the window. Tell me about that. You mentioned a single decker 220. I've never seen such a thing. 
No, I've never seen a single Decker 220, but he said that was what he got on. And I can appreciate that the bus drivers want people to get there. So piling them on is one thing, but he said it was so crowded. He was packed up against everybody in the bus. He could hear people getting sick. So he just got off at the nearest next stop. This was on Monday. Yeah, just quite a warm afternoon. Sun was beaming in. He said the bus was very warm. And was this going all the way down to Crosshaven or wherever it was going? Well, it was a two twenty, and he was he was going he was on it. But I mean, obviously, he got off in before town and waited for another one to come along. Okay, I see. Looking down through the thread on the carried line notice board, other problems come up, like buses not turning up, or a couple of different buses turning up, and they all seem to be full. I saw one bus last week in Carrigline and it said, sorry, bus full. And it was a double-decker and there was hardly anyone downstairs and I couldn't see anyone really upstairs. And another a friend reported to me too that she had a 220 sale pasta coming from UCC and it said, sorry, full, and it wasn't full. As if that's an ongoing problem with the 220. I see. Now, efforts to get explanations from both Aaron and Capwell, they seem to fall on deaf ears, do they? Yes, um, the councillors who respond to the post on Facebook, they say that they've spoken to Boss Air and, and tried to get answers and keeping under pressure, but nothing seems to ever change. And I, yeah, I can understand shortage of staff, but things like telling people you're going to one place when you're not and being actually rude to people is a t- totally different story. I mean, this is just a public service and you shouldn't expect to be rude bus drivers. Mm-hmm. Another thing that seems to happen, again, reading down through the thread, and it's a long thread with a lot of complaints, is buses picking people up at the MTU end or the Model Farm Road end and then coming into town and saying, right, you need to wait for the next one. The bus is supposed to go straight through. Yes, that does happen. Yeah, that happens. I mean, obviously, buses, as the day goes on and there's less service, do come out of service. And you see them leaving Carrigline sometimes with not in service. You see them arriving in Carrigline on a morning with not in service. And that's fair enough because you do have to take buses in and out of service when the when the schedule has, has come down. But um, to actually, I suppose they're bringing them halfway to town and they're near their depot, so they're coming out of service then. But there's nothing to let people know that when they get on the bus. Yes. Again, we come back to the, like our first problem. A person thinks the bus is going to cross Avon, particularly young people getting caught by this, and having to call their parents to say, well, I've just been dropped off now at the primary care centre in Carrigalite, and the bus ain't going to cross Avon, even though it said it did. Yes, yes, that's happening. I mean, my post is just one. There's another post today about the 220 again, but I think that that was caused today. It didn't arrive to take people to school in Crosshaven. There seems to have been a bus breakdown on Maryborough Hill that seemed to have left that knock-on effect. But um, it's just, it's, you know, a week doesn't go by when you don't see posts about the 220. Because mm, I live on Maryborough Hill. 220 is my regular bus route. I never seem to have a problem getting it myself. But then again... I'm not at a really busy part of the route, so that that would that would maybe explain that. But when it came on as a 24-hour route, Kay, and going from one end to the other, from Ballincollig to the other, everyone thought it would solve so many problems. There's a suggestion there I'm seeing from, from one of your contributors that maybe it's time for a 220A and a 220B, for example, one doing one end of it and one doing the other end. Well, I mean, I, I don't know how Aaron would think about that, but, I mean, if people... You know, a lot of people would get on and they'll get off in town. But some people, the reason they have that whole route is because of things like MTU. So if you've got people getting 220A from Carrigline to town, that's really two different routes then. 
Yes. It's not really the 220 if it's not carrying on all the way to ovens. Mm. So, and yes, people, I'm sure people in this area and ourselves, we were delighted to get 24 hour bus service. You know, and it cut, uh, cut, you know, if you're going out for a night in town and it cut down, and taxi costs were huge. So True. It, is, it is a great service to have. And I can understand short staff shortages, but, but not rudeness. Just, it, it just doesn't have to be nice to people. And, you know, it's a job to be nice to people and inform people. One of the most infuriating things appeared to be that there's no answers to any of your questions coming out of Capwell. No, that's right. No. No. And people, you can tell on the thread that people are like, oh, look, we've been here, done this before. You know, you complain, it falls on deaf ears, nothing gets done. Mm. Well, we will contact them. We've done so in the past. Generally, you get a statement. I can't remember if anyone's ever been put on the other end of the telephone to me. But we'll see what happens. Yeah, it'd be great if someone did come on and just, you know, try and explain what some of the, the issues are and, and why they're occurring. Okay, thank you very much. Thank you very much. Cheers. Um, lots of people along the very, the very long route of the 220 have a number of issues with it. I know they listen to us in Capwell. I know that you do, lads. Anyone prepared to tell us why it's not the brilliant service that it could be and it should be? It is a fine service when it works, but it doesn't work, unfortunately, a lot of the time. The 206, says Maeve, is a fairly good service, except when it's delayed or running late. The bus misses out on stops sometimes too, so it gets back to the city on time. Well, some stops, you find yourself a lot these days on a bus with your hand over the bell, because I've noticed that to, you know, keep the buses running as close to on time, if there's no one standing at a stop or if there's no one standing behind the driver waiting to get off, the driver will drive on. And that's okay, unless you don't know the route very well, in which case you're sitting there and the driver whoosh past where you want to go. But that, that's it. that is what it is. 9696. PJ, the 214 stops inside the train station as there's a stop there. Plus, if she was on the 214 hopping inside the train station, that would have brought her to Glenmire to get to CUH. She'd have to get on at Parnell Place or Patrick Street. I'm a 220 driver and I'm listening to this. Thank you. Thank you. So maybe you can text me again. And thanks for that. Um, how does she get directly from the train station to... C-U-H. Is, is there a route for her to do that? She said that she was down by the Dean and she was waiting to get a, a bus across out to C-U-H. That's what, that's what she said. Which sounds to me kind of right because if the bus stop in the train station takes you to Glanmire, the 214 going out, then the 214 coming back, one would assume, goes down the quay by the Dean and heads out eventually to the hospital. Well, thank you for that. A driver on the on the two twenty. Uh, 96. Now, Labour Party councillor John Maher. John, I know you want to talk about ghost buses. These are the ones that go around, seemingly going nowhere, empty, uh, and running around t- trying to keep rosters or trying to keep schedules intact. I think is what they're for. I'll get to that in a minute. I know you want a, a motion coming through the council and all that, but there was a fairly serious incident. We got a picture of it. Up outside Collins's barracks last night, a car overturned. Morning. Morning, PJ. How are things? Um, yeah, look, I, <clears throat> I'd imagine I got similar pictures to yourselves, um, but it just goes back again to maybe 
the, the, the issue of speeding in all communities throughout the city, you know, regardless of when we put in traffic calming or we put in the, the speed ramps or if we put in the, the, the cameras that flash at your speed, you know, um, or, or, other, or other kind of uh, mechanisms to slow down traffic. The bottom line is that driver behaviour is proving that we're not slowing down. Mm. Um, you know, only last week again on Glen Avenue, there was a young person involved in a hit and run. Mm-hmm. Again, the speeds coming up through Glen Avenue are just excessive. And um, but again, you know, once once this topic has been opened, you'll have people texting in from all over the city. It, no matter where I go in the northeast ward, um, driver behaviour is really, really, you know, mm-hmm. it, it it is out of control. Being honest, you know. Well, I've spoken um, to both the nana and the mom of that young lad who was knocked down up the but then he's lucky yeah. to be alive, John. No, he absolutely, PJ. Like, and you know, um, I suppose the problem is, is that from my perspective as a public rep, is that where we are putting in investment into speed ramps or to the cameras or or, or changing the kind of dynamics of the road, I still don't see the speed reducing, and that's worrying. Mm. That genuinely is worrying because I I know before I might have had been on the phone saying, oh, we don't have the money. We do have funding now. Yeah. And we are investing. We the, are investing in, in in particular. I can speak for the northeast ward. That's what. That's yeah. who I represent. Yeah. But well, that have, that, that issue that, that that hit and run up at the Glen, which is under guard investigation, so one needs to be careful. Obviously, but but yeah. I think it was Dean's Nana who said to me that people wanted speed ramps up there, but they were told it can't be done. Yeah. Well, look, well, PJ, on on that one, I I when I first became elected we were told that speed ramps can be put in certain places and I think now if you went around the northeast ward we'd prove that they can number one on Glen Avenue um, now this is no um, this will be no joy to, to Dean and, and to his nana um, but we're hoping that with the bus connects that there'll be three pedestrian crossings put across Glen Avenue that's the submission that was put in and I know that that's something we're all keen to to get in but again that's no that's that's of no solace to, to Dean or his nana and his mam I know. Um, you know, but I, I, but fundamentally, PJ, what we can all do tomorrow or now is slow down. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. my experience, and I'm telling you, someone who we have put in speed ramps and we have put in the money, it isn't working, and that's worrying. <sighs> you know, there, there's a behaviour out there mm-hmm. that you know I'm invincible, and it's young, it's old, um, and you know, like again, I think everyone can give you an example. But the one thing we can solve tomorrow without any money is driver behaviour. Driver behaviour. We all need to look at ourselves, me, me included. Yeah, yeah, I'm not no, perfect. No, no, I, I, I'm, I'm, I'm very, very same. I, I, you know, I, I, I was, that. I was on, and full disclosure, I was on a motorway last week. I did one, two, seven. I got caught. I got fined. I paid my points. I'm not perfect. I'm not here saying that I am, and I think that's important. Mm. But what I do, and what we all can do, is we can look at ourselves and just say, how can I be safer on the road? Because that's the one thing that will solve things know mm-hmm. you know yeah we can put in the ramps and we can put in cameras um, you know but that's going to take time but the one thing we can all do now is, is look at ourselves and, and slow down and I think that's really really important sure. Okay John talk to me about ghost buses because people have see buses empty and go no, seemingly going nowhere the, the story we're told is that they're to keep the, the schedule running on time, but in, if you're standing in the, in the pissing rain and an empty bus goes past you at speed, that's that's infuriating. It, it, PJ, it is, and I suppose look, <clears throat> of be full again. I I come from privilege. When I use the bus, 
it's on the weekends and the, the worst thing that happens to me if a bus goes by is that I don't get my, my grub or I don't get a pint till an hour later. Mm. I realise how privileged I am. But there's a lot of people that use the bus to get to appointments, to get to work, to get to school, um, you know, and that's to get into town to do their messages, collect their pension. And I think that's where the real frustration is. And, and, and again, um, I suppose... I was getting a lot of representations um, and, 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 and tried to figure out in my own head, you know, again, people would say, oh, Jesus, you're elected in City Hall. And I agree with them, by the way. And then sometimes the 31 of us are looking going, yeah, we don't have an answer. And that's frustrating. Um, and that goes back then to the bureaucracy. It goes back to the idea that bus air and need to tender to the NTA. Mm. Um, and sometimes you're wondering. You're just wondering who is running things, you know. Yeah, and I, and because I in, fairness, in fairness to Boss Aaron and in fairness to management and Capwell, and, and you know, they, they can't scratch their arse without the okay from from someone up the up the ladder, and, and that must be difficult to work with. You've you've called on the council to bring Boss Aaron management into the transport committee. No, I have, um, PJ, and I, my motivation again was frustration. <laughs> like in the motion, first of all, is to address the the, the 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 ghost buses, right? Because the the experience, and I know your callers will 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 follow through with this, is that we all understand that things happen, and there's a once-off, and you know we understand that. But this is every day. I have people contacting me every day. In my experience, what I'm getting is that the two one four and the two o seven. You know, and now again, that's probably from the ward I represent, mm. but they're the two buses that I have constant. My nephew, he goes to Glamour Community College and he gets a private bus. But on the on a Friday, he would come home if he trains late. He would use the public bus. He's been, they've drove past him. The bus hasn't turned up. He's 14, you know. No, he's well able. But I'm just saying, you know, these are examples that I'm living as well. It's not just listening to emails coming in. And when we have people telling us that we want to use more, we should be using more public transport, we should be getting out of the car, getting onto the bus, getting onto the train, then we need a public transport system, John, I'm sure you'd agree, that, that lives up, lives up to that need. Uh, some people contact me about what happened up by, by the barracks. Uh, people last night were very shaken especially the elderly. No one from our area is taking road safety seriously. Please put that to your representative. It's frightening to have this happen at any time of the day or night. It is, PJ. It, you know, again, I don't think there's anyone disputing that. I think nobody, look, doctors, different patients die. We had work just done up on Ratmore Road, uh, coming on to the Old Oil Road. To, 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 because previously a car came down Ratmore Road and went through what was the old um, a new U hairdressers with people in it. So we had addressed that junction up there. If if anybody knows the 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 road from we will call it the new U junction right down to the grotto on on Harrington Square, is that that is an extremely there's cars on one side of the road parked um, on one of the road on the top half of the road there's cars parked on both sides. And as you go down towards the grotto, there's cars parked on the left. Now that's a very narrow road, where no, like where where the speeds that were generated last night. Again, it goes. I don't even know, even if we. This is my point. We can put a ramp there, but I don't think it's going to stop that behaviour because the the cars and the 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 space you had to drive there last night should have slowed you down. Know? Yeah, it's that narrow. It's yeah. that narrow, you know. Yeah. And again, um, all public reps. Uh, will will meet with anybody that 
that that makes an email that contacts you know the initial to the caller the initial issue was with Ratmore Road coming onto the OIR Road where a car went through a hairdresser's and that was addressed but mm. again the speeding still generated from that same spot yeah. last night you fix one problem it seems to it seems to move elsewhere and like you said earlier John driver responsibility we need to we need all, we all need to to pay our own part play our own part by by slowing down as best we can thank you very much John Maher uh, Labour Party City Councillor. On the buses, this from a person says they are the wife of a bus driver. Drivers are dealing with some very nasty people, some of them peeing and gawking on the long bus routes. And they don't get paid enough to be dealing with the grief that they get. Thank you for that, and I'm sorry that that happens. And to be fair, when you take a late night bus, which I do, uh, you will see that. You'll see messing going on. You'll see young fellas who should be old enough to know better doing things they shouldn't be doing. That, To be fair, you do. You certainly do. 0818 96 96 96 on chroming, this new craze of sniffing aerosols. But it's not new. It's been around since the 80s, as Mary told us earlier on. Told us the story of her boy, Billy, who died. He wasn't even 16. If it was any of my children doing chroming or sniffing or ballooning, I'd hang them or their parents out to dry and, and their friends out to dry. I don't think any parent should live in fear. And Sandra says, I have to walk home from work at night past lads who are doing hash candy and doing the helium thing. It's terrifying. They don't hassle me, but it's very intimidating that they're just there. Join the conversation. This is the Opinion Line. With Hidden Hearing, focused solely on your hearing health for over 35 years. They're all ears. Visit hiddenhearing.ie. Cork's 96 FM. The Big Drive Home. With Izzy Showbizzy. It's so good. On Cork's 96 FM. Join me weekdays from 4pm to hear more kids stealing their mom's phone for requests. Hi Izzy, this is Erin. <laughs> Even if you don't know my name yet, it's cool, I'm still new here. Hi, so Izzy Bosch. Hi, oh, Busy. Hi, it's so busy. And there'll be plenty more chances for you to win amazing prizes. We would love to win the tickets to the fire show, please. Join me weekdays from 4 pm. The Big Drive Home. You can drive me home. With Izzy Showbizzy. 96FM. 96FM. That uh, motion that John Maher has before the council calls on Bus Aaron to, in, or calls for Bus Aaron to be invited into the Roads and Transportation Committee to discuss bus times, ghost buses, lack of buses at big events, late night buses, particularly over Christmas and the jazz. And it was proposed uh, two weeks ago. I don't know whether it's happened yet or not. But thank you for that. Now, Chiara, you've recently arrived from Germany to live in Cork and there's a big difference in public transport. Good morning. Good morning, PJ. Yes, it was really a big difference. Uh, I was not expecting uh, actually a situation so bad. <laughs> I'm sorry, I don't want it to sound like, you know, condescending, like, oh yeah, I come from abroad, the uh, situation everywhere well, else Well, no, you know, because we're entitled to see <laughs> what, you know, like we see what happens, any of us who travel a little bit have seen public transport in other countries. So so what part of Germany did you come from? So I come I come from Heidelberg. So I'm originally, I mean, I'm Italian, okay. <laughs> but I was working in uh, in Germany and uh, we, uh, my husband and our kids moved to, to Ireland uh, mm-hmm. um, like a month ago. 
And uh, yeah. So when you were working <laughs> was, in Heidelberg um, and your husband worked, like yes, what? So the- my husband is working downtown at the UCC. So he, I mean, one of the idea when we moved here was like, oh, because we live close to a Balling Calling, like on the two hundred twenty yeah. route. So we're like, oh yes, great. The bus is so frequent, as a, like go all day long, all night long. So you know, it would be awesome. We don't need an extra car. We just like you know one car for a. You know emergencies, mm-hmm. but we can uh, do our share for like you know environmental reasons and uh, take mm. the bus to go to work. It will be awesome. <laughs> and then like you know, after the first few days, like this is never going to work because the bus are completely unreliable. And I mean, and my husband doesn't even have like a nine to five job. It's like you know you have to you know stamp your arrival at a certain time. It's pretty flexible mm. because like, you know, works at the university. So, it's, you know, it's not administration. So, you, like, you know, you can allow some delay, but like this is completely like, you know, <laughs> unknown when you leave, when you arrive, when he comes, when he's coming back from uh, from work. Mm. It's a total, you know, mystery. What, what, what I think you're telling me, Chiara, is that the timetable is a work of fiction. Yes, basically, yes. Sometimes it, it says to me, oh, I'm going to take the bus now. I saw on the on, online you know, where you can track your bus so that the bus is like five minutes so I can just leave the office now and be there in time to take it. And then it waits like, you know, half an hour, more, and, and there is no way, either because the bus are completely full and they don't take any more people. Mm. And that is like, you know, the UCC is still like, you know, a long way back to Balling calling. And, uh, or because of the bus is basically kind of, disappearing and then there is no bus whatsoever yeah and, you, op- and, you like, open you know, the app on your phone you you walked and this has happened to me and i live on the 220 route at the other end you 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 open your phone and you say oh great there's a bus in five minutes i'll, I'll walk over yes. and wait for those you get to the bus stop bus cancelled yes it's like boo <laughs> I, I i don't know i really don't know and sometimes you know tra- going around they see Maybe I don't know. It's me not knowing as there are some tricks or something since I'm like a new here. But like, you know, the 220, I've always thought, okay, it goes down to Model Farm Road. Uh, and sometimes I see it on, I think it's Carrigahan <laughs> Lane, yeah, good, whatever. Good effort, good effort, Carrigahan, yeah. <laughs> yeah, so it's like, you know, no, it's doing another route. And, and I don't know if, if like, you know, there is a way to know if the bus you are in or the bus you are waiting is suddenly doing another way and then you would never make it home or you will never take it to go downtown or something like that. Now, so, compare it to what you came from, Cara. Yeah, it, it, so um, Heidelberg, it's, it's not uh, like a, a metropolis. It's, I mean, it's bigger than Cork, but it's not, uh, mm. you know, Berlin or Munich. Let's say, just to give a comparison. I think I, I think it's like slight, but maybe, or maybe slightly Cork size. But okay, still, okay. Uh, but the, Comparable. But... Uh, so I think like you know probably the the best uh, reason why the, the the public transportation works fine is that there is a tram line, and then it's like you know uh, I think that it makes more reliable because it's like you know its own route and there is no extra things that can go in the <laughs> tracks like Nothing you know in the way. Maybe yeah. Not, not yeah. Ca- yeah. Uh, but even buses that they follow, like, you know, normal routes, they are, you know, of course, they can be a little bit delayed. But either if they are very delayed, there is an explanation. There is written, like, you know, oh, there is uh, whatever, an accident or uh, the road is closed for whatever, you know, a pole, uh, a pole um, like, you know, telephone pole uh, fell on the street or something. Mm. Right. So y- you know that, OK, 
my bus is gone, I will find another way without waiting forever. Or, I mean, they can come up with some substitution bus or some trick. Uh, but you are informed at least. Yes. And, uh, and I think that yes. seems to be a big problem with a lot of people, You, not just you, Cara, but others who say the big problem with the bus route, whether it's the 220, the 214, the 206, the 207, whatever it is, if something's wrong, we don't know. We're just standing there in yeah. the rain wondering when the next bus is going to come. Thank you so much for your call, first call. And do call again. Thank you, Cara. 0818 96 96 96. Yeah. Um... There's, there's loads, there's loads. The, two, the 220 sometimes comes to Ballancolic and goes out as far as ovens and then goes back on the motorway as out of service. Then it joins back into the roundabout at the start of Ballancolic, missing out completely on the village. It's so annoying. I had to get a taxi to a removal the other day because no bus turned up to the stop near me. I waited nearly an hour, so instead of paying a couple of euros for the bus, I ended up paying 24 euros for a taxi to get to something important. It's gone very bad too in the evenings with all the traffic. And that is from D. And also, why don't the private bus companies set up a route from the railway station to CUH and return to the railway station? The way the Green Party is treating us, we won't be able to afford to drive the damn things again because they're putting up the price of fuel. 0818969696. And I waited for the 214 yesterday for 65 minutes in the middle of Storm Agnes. The 214 is the worst bus in the world in the last two months. You simply can't depend on it. And that's from Anne, 0818 Join the conversation. This is the Opinion Line. With Hidden Hearing, changing lives with the latest hearing health technology. They're all ears. Visit hiddenhearing.ie. Cox 96 FM. The minds are live. Join the conversation. Call 0818 96 96 96. Extra WhatsApp 0833 but I'm joined in studio, I was laughing here during the news, if we tried once, we, we tried a hundred times over a period of nearly two years to, to speak, even on the telephone with Dr. Tony Hulhan, but it wasn't possible because he was just too inundated with work, I guess, during the pandemic to, to do any any uh, local or regional radio. So, so Tony, it's, 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 it's good to talk to you now. You come here uh, with your new book, We Need to Talk. Now, former Chief Medical Officer, you spent 14 years in that job, when I heard you were writing a book, Tony, I thought, great, because I've read three or four books on the pandemic written by various different people, and I thought, here's a take on the pandemic that I really want to hear. This is not a book about the pandemic. No. It's in there, mm-hmm. but it's only part of the book. This is a very personal story about you and your family and everything to do with that. It opens in a family occasion when you're getting word of what might be starting to happen in Wuhan. But this is a book about you and family and work. Why did you decide to take that approach, Tony? Okay, well, good morning, PJ, and thanks for having me, and good to be here in Cork, and good to be here in the studio with you. Um, The main motivation from my point of view is, in fact, my wife, Emer, 
who was diagnosed with multiple myeloma in 2012 and who died on the 19th of February of 2021, she had a story and she wanted that story to be told. And that story is in the book and that's the personal Mm. uh, story that weaves through it. And I can't tell the story of my life, if you like, without reflecting on both the personal and the professional. She had three main reasons, really, for, for wanting to tell the story. The first was she experienced, unfortunately, a delay in the diagnosis. Her, her cancer was called multiple myeloma. It's a cancer that usually occurs with people in older years. Yeah. It's not that common in people under the age of 50. She was 45 when she was diagnosed. Uh, she had two presentations to hospitals. Uh, there were re- referrals that were written by myself. We expressed a lot of concern in some of those referrals, and yet we were reassured by you know, the, 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 the examinations that she received in the hospital, mm-hmm. that nothing serious was going on. And of course, that turned out not to be true. Uh, and we, we, she was very keen that that story would be told and that people, you know, would be aware maybe of the importance of not mm-hmm. necessarily questioning and distrusting what they're hearing from doctors, but, but having, having an open questioning mm-hmm. mind. So that, that she was, was a doctor reason. as well. She was a doctor. We were both yeah. classmates. We met yeah. in 1985 in, in, yeah. in UCD as medical students. Uh, the second reason was that towards the end of her life, she had significant radiotherapy and chemotherapy right the way through her, through her disease. Uh, it was becoming clear that she was experiencing a lot of side effects, but maybe not getting much in the way of benefit. And we had the knowledge, I suppose, of the importance of doing so, but also the courage to be able to precipitate a conversation, to start a conversation with the medical team that was looking after him or to say, is there a continuing value here and continuing treatment? And as a result of that, Emer stepped back from treatment in late 2020 uh, and she came home you could say she she came off effectively to die. Uh, but because she was now free of both radiotherapy and chemotherapy and the side effects that went with them, she was actually, she improved. She improved quite significantly over a number of weeks. Now, she did subsequently uh, deteriorate in early February of 2021 and then subsequently, as I said, died on the 19th of February. But we got a family Christmas together in terms of how she was and how she was able to enjoy it, free of health services and drugs and medications and so on. Mm-hmm. The importance of some of those conversations being initiated either by doctors or sometimes by families and Mm -hmm. patients themselves, she wanted to highlight. And the third reason uh, is that we used a set of materials, and some people may be familiar with these, the Hospice Foundation, uh, and I'm on the board now of that, and I'm very glad to be in a position to support the work that they do, produced this so-called Think Ahead Pack. Mm -hmm. So a little bit like when you're setting out a will, or when you're thinking about powers of attorney, you're thinking about the never-never, things we don't want to think about, but we have to. We all know that we're going to die. And they deal with the situation whereby if you're not in a situation where you're able to express your own wish because something has happened to Mm -hmm. you, that people know because it's written down. And so this pack takes you through very practical conversations that you have. And we had those conversations. Mm -hmm. Sometimes we just do 20 minutes at a time and we'd put it away. Uh, But over time, we completed the Think Ahead pack and it's there for anybody to download from the website of the Hospice Foundation. And it takes you into all sorts of practical things. Do you want to be buried or to be cremated? Mm -hmm. You know, what other wishes you have for how you want to be cared for towards the end of your life if you're not able to express that wish yourself? And even basic things like your bank account numbers, your Netflix password, these things that are actually really important in your everyday life. So there's incredibly helpful materials we got the benefit from. So she wanted those stories to be to be shared because mm. she thought that perhaps other people, did, other did families... Did she ask you situations. to write the book, Tony? She did. We spoke about it. And right. she, she wanted me to, to tell her story. The, the, the one that I began with, she actually wrote a letter of complaint, as it was at the time, to the hospital. Uh, and it's a very difficult letter to read. It runs to four or five pages. Uh, and she wanted the detail of that. And mm. to, about to, how they missed it. Yeah, and about the yeah. delay in the diagnosis. Because you now, talk about several admissions to ED with a, a lot yes. of pain and not yeah. knowing where it's come yeah. from and all yeah. this. Yeah. And then... When you describe multiple myeloma, the, the, 
It's an intensely painful cancer. You can feel the pain coming off the pages. It must have been awful. It really was. And that's really the thing that Emir was most upset about. We knew that perhaps this was a the nature of the diagnosis that we couldn't prevent it it's not ultimately a curable cancer but we now have wonderful drugs that can slow down its progression and if it had been picked up at an earlier stage we think there's a very good chance that she would have experienced a lot less symptoms and pain she had quite advanced bony disease when she was initially diagnosed and mm-hmm. in retrospect she was quite sick and she could have been spared at least some of those so she lived with pain you know every day and she mm-hmm. was on medication for that pain relief every day it and, was, and we might it was incurable but they did drive it into remission at one point do you think it could have been stopped if it had been caught well stopped it, or it, put on hold I, I think we could have pro- stopped the progression of very severe symptoms I don't yeah. think we would have saved Emer's life necessarily but she, she got, you know, eight and a half years in total yeah. after her initial diagnosis, which was beyond anything we could have possibly mm-hmm. have imagined because she got wonderful care. In, in, in our case, it was in St. James's mm-hmm. Hospital under the direction of Professor Paul Brown with the bone marrow transplant unit. Mm-hmm. She had a bone marrow transplant in the spring of 2013. It was a friend, wasn't it, who eventually spotted it. A yeah, friend, a doctor that you were friends with. Yeah, that's right. So a GP, first of all, a friend of mine that I asked to have a look when Emer got into a little a crisis, in, in fact. We had been reassured, as I said, by a couple of visits to an emergency department. But a GP friend of mine took a look and he really was concerned, maybe mm. a week or two after one of those uh, accident emergency visits. So we did get her into hospital under the care of Professor Hugh Mulcahy, who was, who was a friend of ours. Mm. And some of the initial investigations made clear that there was something serious going on. Now, he's a gastroenterologist, not the field of relevance Mm. at all. So the referral was then made to the Mm -hmm. haematology team, the blood cancer team in in St. James's Hospital. That's why she moved then from his care in St. Vincent's to Mm St. James's. Mm -hmm. One might look at it and think, there you were, chief medical officer, very high-ranking official in, 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 in the state, easy for you to move around from consultant to consultant. But did you go through the public system Yes, absolutely. And I'll tell you that the public cancer services in this country are the best cancer services that we have in this country. They have well-organised multidisciplinary teams. And just by, you know, virtue of the work I was involved in, you'll be familiar with this concept of multidisciplinary teams. Mm -hmm. What's Mm -hmm. really important with cancer is that the diagnosis is made and you get the right diagnosis by a multidisciplinary team, not just one consultant. And then that the treatment is planned by that same multidisciplinary team. So we now have established centres, people call them centres of excellence, which mm-hmm. is probably not a great term, but centres no, of we, we, high standards. We have one of them you here. certainly have one of them here in Cork. And, and, and they yeah. treat all forms of cancer. You're a really yeah. expert uh, centre with we're, wonderful we're, doctors, we're, surgeons, medical oncologists, radiation oncologists and so on. I know quite a number of them. We're, we're very proud of it because here every so May should be. at the radio station we have a radiothon for cancer services. Oh, very good. And we've raised over five million wow. in the period of time. And Excellent. we talk every year about the brilliance of the people. And one thing yeah. I've noticed over the years Tony, the stories, the number of people coming to us now who have recovered and are doing yeah. really well compared even to 10 yeah. years ago. So the centres of excellence, yeah. And Shona's just saying to me here, and it's a good point, this is also a love story. Yeah. Uh, and it, this is hard for you, this was hard yeah, for you to write. Yeah. Uh, it, it, it was. Uh, and, and, and somebody else described it in those terms to me, uh, that this is a love story. And, and I like, to be honest, I like that description. I do. Um, I, I tried to write the book as well as I could in terms of, you know, the story of Emer and our relationship and how it began, uh, how family life occurred and all of those things. And then ultimately how that was impacted because her diagnosis and ultimately the significant progression of her disease and ultimately her death had a huge impact on her family. I used to talk about 
put it in the house as like we need to look at this as like it's an unwanted guest has come in to stay and yeah. isn't going to leave we have to just get used to the fact that this guest is around and let's just try and make the best of things mm. and, and so we just we, we, we got on with life yeah. and it was a very ordinary family life that I think a lot of people relate to where you know we had kids in school and with all the usual kind of challenges that we had yeah. to overcome but uh, we kept communication both yeah. between us but also with the children very much at the core of how we tried to manage things over the, the time period. We have a colleague here in the company who, who lost his wife to cancer and we all knew her very well and loved her dearly. And there's that. a line in it, Tony. Yeah. Was it Emer's line or your line? The thief of everything you hold dear. Well, I mean, that was a description of her, that, that she made of herself. That all the kinds of... Everything from how she felt, how, how she looked, her physical appearance, how she felt in terms of her emotional well-being, pain, all of those kinds of things. She was a tall woman. She was the same height as me when we met first, just just five mm. eleven or so. Shrank. She shrank significantly. But she, she had four to five of her vertebrae over the time period collapsed, and she lost probably five to six inches in height. So, like everything, including her life, she lost um, over the time period, and she was robbed, obviously, ultimately of the time with the children. Now, when it all began, my son. It was, uh, it was almost 10, not quite 10. My daughter was 11. She saw both of them to adulthood. So we were very privileged mm. because we didn't, she, and she certainly didn't. I know this from letters that she wrote. She didn't have that expectation mm. at the beginning. She was living with the ever-present fear mm. of dying within a very short period of time. With you both being doctors, she had an understanding of what was hanging over her. Did that make it harder or easier to, 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 to deal, deal with it? And that's a good question. We often asked ourselves that question. In some ways it made it harder and in other ways it made it easier. Like, so it was easier in the sense that like we understood certain things. We understood the importance of, let's say, her being cared for in certain institutions by certain teams and so on. But harder in the sense that we were aware of all the things that could happen and could go wrong and all of that. Uh, but we learned to place our trust in what was a really excellent team uh, of doctors and not to be, as it were, second-guessing them. It's a very hard thing to be a doctor as well as a husband and a father and so on. So I stepped back from the doctor role, if you like, in that and mm. stopped, if you like, looking at the literature and trying to see mm. what the Did what you have to check yourself there? Oh, I did. I did. And, and I spoke very significantly to a very close friend of mine who's the head of the medical school in Trinity, Colin Darty, who, about that very question, what... what what's the best way of being in this situation? I don't situation? want my doctor, I want my husband. I want yeah, my husband. yeah. And, and I was the only person who could fulfil that role. Yeah. I'm not saying yeah. I did it perfectly or yeah. even well, but I did it to the best of my ability. I couldn't be Emer's doctor. She had wonderful doctors and you've, you've said it about COH here, as I say, I know them. There are many, many excellent doctors here, many patients who'll be, or people who'll be listening who have cancer under the care of, of, of great doctors. The importance of placing your trust in those, mm-hmm. but perhaps not mm-hmm. blindly, being, being, being aware that, look, yeah. you know, look, I mean, doctors, nurses, systems, none of them are perfect. Uh, uh, but, but we have excellent ones in this country. Mm-hmm. We certainly benefited from the care that Emma received in St. James's. How we knew as a general public, Tony, this was going on, was when you left our television screens mm-hmm. in the summer of 2020. Before I get to that point, when you got the word, I'm going to move on a little bit to the pandemic, when you got the word that something was brewing... And people around you, Killian de Gascoon, who I spoke to in the very early days of it here, said, we need to think about this because mm. this is going to be a problem. Mm. Had you any idea that first night, you were in a family meal and you got the first notification, had you any idea how awful it was going to get? 
I don't honestly think that I could say I knew how awful it was, how awful it was going to get. But we certainly knew from previous experience and from our knowledge and training that just because we had seen some things happening over in China, there was very like there was a high likelihood that it was going to come to this part of the world and come reasonably quickly and so it did. The swine flu pandemic which I'd also been through, Mm -hmm. that was in my very early days as Chief Medical Officer uh, that began with the initial reports coming out of Mexico in late April of 2009 and within six weeks, that was declared as a global pandemic. So I knew I'd that that's forgotten that actually that yeah. it was a pandemic. I'd it was, it was declared that. as a pandemic. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Which is a technical term, and it means that it's spreading in epidemic form in at least two of the five areas mm. of the WHO around the world. Um, and so, yes, that was the previous pandemic, if you like, uh, of influenza, uh, and it became a global pandemic, as I say, from first reports within a six-week period. So we knew within a short period of time we would be dealing with cases. I think maybe some of the initial media reporting and maybe the hopeful uh, conversations that people were having was that, like, well, this is something in, in China. Yeah. Uh, let's or look. Italy. Yeah, or, or, yeah, and then it came to Italy. Uh, and not realising, but we knew. And then you, you, you spoke about Killian. Killian is a virologist, uh, an expert member mm. of our team. He, he certainly knew for sure yeah. that this was going to be with us within a short period of time, and yeah, so it was. Yeah, and it, it, it terrified the life out of us. And then you... You left the stage in, in, if you like, left the television screens in, in midsummer, and we, real, we, we, we learned that it was because of, of email illness you were going away to mind her. She sent you back to work. <laughs> well, we talked about it, and like, like everything, we did talk about it, because mm. like, uh, the summer went on, she actually did quite well after she was in the hospice at, at that point mm. in, in, in July, and it wasn't her first admission to the hospice. We had great care there on many, many occasions. Uh, she came home towards the end of July uh, of that uh, year, um, in 2020 uh, and then as the summer progressed case numbers started unfortunately to go back up again mm. particularly over the course of September it was obvious that case numbers were going back up again me being at home and away from work when Emer was feeling well was not normal so like from Emer's point of view having me around the house was almost confirming to her that things are not good she was mm. beginning to feel much better it's not necessarily expected she responded well to changes in treatment over the course of that summer um, and so we talked about it and she felt that you know, the right thing for me to do and the right thing for us to do as a family was to support me in going back to work. So I went back to work in early October. I wasn't to know what was going to happen. We knew ultimately Emer would run into difficulty down the line, but Emer was back in the hospice before the end of October. Mm. So and it, it was what, yeah. February, February 2021? When she died, yeah. The 19th, yeah. yeah. When yeah. you were dealing with, that was early 2021, was, and he kept account of it here, this programme ran off COVID for three years, two years. It was the worst. She ran. She she died at the time when COVID was running riot. Yeah, we had we had really really. It's been so hard for you. Yeah, it was difficult. It was really difficult. It was difficult for everybody though. It was not just for us, mm. though, for the whole country. Like, she, I forgot to say to people, and it's it's very clear in the book. Like she was a high risk patient yeah. from day one. Like that must have been hard. Yeah, to come um, home in the evenings and yeah. be told to be so careful. We, we we talked about the high risk risk factors, but at the very top of the list of highest risk are people with conditions like multiple myeloma. So genuinely we lived in fear uh, of Emer picking up the infection and thankfully she never did. Uh, and the biggest risk for our family of Emer picking up the infection was the trips that she had to make in for treatment into St. James's. Mm. And, and no more than many other hospitals in the country, St. James's had its own challenges with outbreaks mm-hmm. from time to time. So mm. she really feared going yeah. into James's and uh, we managed Some of the other her. books have talked about, about James's and about the pressure it came under and, and, and came through It did. Looking back on those times and, you know, there was restrictions and then they were eased and they were back, they were eased, they were back, they were eased. You you write about it and it's public knowledge. There were often tensions 
between yourself and government over what should be done and how it should be done. Looking back on it now, Tony, you know, people say, oh, but I lost my business and my, my kids lost two years of their schooling and lost this and that. And there was an awful lot of loss out of COVID, not just life, not just health. Loss of business and loss of schooling and loss of all this. Would you do everything the same now? I'm sure we wouldn't do everything the same. We know a lot more now than we knew at the beginning of it. Um, what needs to happen now, and I know government is intent on establishing a lessons learned exercise to try to establish how we might do things better into the future. And certainly there are things that we would look at doing differently. Um, the, the, in, in early last year, uh, Professor Hugh Brady from UCD, uh, and I commissioned this in the last six months when I was there, did an extensive lessons learned exercise. He had an international panel of people who looked at strengthening our public health system, produced a report that he gave to the minister last year. Uh, it was published by by, by the government uh, a couple of weeks ago. And I think there now needs to be a discussion and a debate about what will be, and I know this is the intention, you've heard the Taoiseach, I'm sure, saying yeah. this, to set up that inquiry. And we'll cooperate because we do need to go through this. Many other countries <laughs> making similar sorts of preparations just to make sure that we keep learning and keep improving. I picked up from the book, you, you don't labour the point, but, but you do make the, make the point that if bird flu, as we call it, if bird flu were to become as transmissible to and between humans as COVID did, we could be in very serious trouble. Yes, and that risk hasn't gone away, unfortunately, PJ, and I don't want to be hurt, no, you know, you no, know but just, frightening just, people. But let's just say it for a second. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Avian flu is a much more severe form of influenza. Uh, and it's one that affects birds. It's very common now in bird flocks in mm. in, in the wild, and both and bird flocks occasionally in in captivity. What what the virus has learned to do is to pass from bird to bird, mm. and to pass from bird to human. So people who look after birds are very much at risk. The that virus hasn't yet learned how to jump from human to human. If it learns that, we're going to have a very significant challenge, and the risk of that has not gone away. Can we get ahead of it with vaccines and things? Well, the, the, there are there are. Uh so developing vaccines uh, for influenza at one level we have a head start because they we have the the process that we use every year to reformulate mm. the the vaccine um to uh to produce um a vaccine that's focused on the on the circulating strains there will be questions about the global capacity to produce large volumes of influenza uh, if that challenge arises. But many of the lessons that we've learned from COVID will be relevant. The building of the resilience from the lessons learned exercise that the government is intent on start will be critical, in my view, to making sure that we're better protected than, than we were, perhaps, uh, for this. I mean, I might offer one example of, of, of protection in relation to nursing homes. And mm. I've, said it, I've said it many times. The model of, of, of care that we have in the nursing home sector placed people who were vulnerable at very high risk and because... Well, it's true to say that the virus called SARS-CoV-2 caused COVID. The truth is that the burden of of the impact of COVID on our society and our population was felt by people who were in who were vulnerable, whether they were older, whether there were people like we spoke about with underlying medical conditions, or whether there were people in socio-economic circumstances, overcrowding, and so mm. on. These were the people who suffered the burden of mortality and morbidity mm. over the course. And we really have to tackle some of those kinds of risks because I think some of them haven't gone away. Okay, okay. Come back to 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 your own life, your own family after after Emer died. Um, you'd known and loved this woman for twenty five years, all my adult life. All you I met her when I was eighteen. She was kind of your first real girlfriend, wasn't she? Oh yeah, absolutely. I had no experience in those matters at all. How do you, that how stage, did, to be honest. How do you deal with that, Tony? As a man, how do, you, how do you deal with that being wrenched out of your life? Yeah, it was it was difficult. It didn't happen all of a sudden. 
yeah. obviously. Like, Which it was probably a, means it harder, does it? It does in some ways, but it also means that, like, you know, there was a lot of it. You, you, you may be familiar with the term anticipatory grief. Mm. But like, we knew what was going to happen, and we did a lot of it in the way of preparation mm. uh, for that. Um, obviously, it impacted on our family, it impacted on a relationship, and I've tried to be honest about that. Uh, I wasn't always at my best in every circumstance that I found myself at home in helping Emer, and I have to think about that um, because it's just for that length of time. And with all the pressures on the family, it's not always possible for us all to be perfect uh, all of the time. Um, and so it did impact our family in a very significant way. Um, and, uh, you know, we lived with it, as I say, for, for, for a very long period of time. And one of the things that I think Emer was upset about was, was the, the idea that our children, particularly our son, who was only nine at the time, found it difficult to remember time when she was well. Yeah, Which I think is really, it was really sad. That's that was really sad. You that's know, Ronan. How, how are yeah, they doing now, Ronan? Claude? They're good. They're in the twenties now. Yeah, they? yeah. Ronan was twenty-one last week, and he's he's gone into third year in actuarial studies in UCD. Uh, and Clever he's boy. Playing senior football with uh, Temple Oak Sing Street, our local club in Dublin, and my, my daughter. Cloda is in Trinity and final year in physiotherapy and she's on a clinical placement up at the moment in Cavan Hospital. Mm. So, yeah, they're getting on How well are they life. dealing with it? Two years yeah, on, really? I, I think well. Um, like, we communicate as a family. We find a way of speaking about it all of the time. The we're very close. They still live at home uh, and we're in each other's lives, very much so. Um, I was chatting to Claude on two or three occasions this morning as I drove down here. Um, uh, you know, we stay in daily contact with each other and, you know, we, we celebrate together. I go to all of Ronan's matches and mm. not to his training sessions anymore, but all, to all his matches and all of that. Mm. Uh, so uh, no more than many other Irish families, we are close mm. and we've, we've kept that closeness. And I've tried to ensure that the children find it okay and natural to talk about to mention Emer mm. uh, in conversation on a continuing basis mm. and of course we all, the three of us we all have our moments we have our moments mm. you, when you, we find it difficult and we're able to talk to each other about that yeah. you, you have somebody new in, in your life and one of the nicest things people said to you are some, who was it said to you that Emer would be would be happy for you well it was it was Emer herself because she, she left a series of letters she left letters for her family and friends but in particular letters for the children she left three letters for me that were written at different stages in the course of her illness that's how I know about what I mentioned earlier on her living with the ever-present fear of, of dying mm. early on in the course of the illness but she addressed in writing the question of me meeting somebody and she wanted me to to move on and maybe find happiness with somebody else in the future and she and would have known the person that you know no, no 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 she didn't know that no she didn't know the individual Kira, isn't it? Yeah. Kira. but as it turns out uh, Kira's best friend is a friend of one of ours that we talk about in the book. Uh, so, you know, no more than Cork, I'm sure, Dublin, the Times is too small. And um, uh, But but the person who mentioned it to me was Emer's older sister, Orla, who's now the president of, of UCD. Uh, I rang Orla to tell her, because I wanted the, 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 the Feedy family to hear this news from yes. me, and I rang Orla to tell her that I had, had met Kira, and uh, she, she said, oh, I'm delighted, delighted for you. She said, you know, Emer wanted this for you. She, yeah. she told me that and I, had no, I didn't know that up to that point and I mean that was an emotional moment for me because yes. I could feel Emer's support in that yes. and uh, yes. of course Emer didn't want to die I didn't want her to die I didn't want our marriage and our relationship to end yes. uh, uh, cancer intervened um, mm. but Emer you know in her I think love and support for me uh, found a way of letting me know that she was supportive and I've been very lucky and I feel privileged to have met right. Kira. Tony, I, I must bring something up with you because it's very big, been very big locally. And sure. I've spoken to one member of Two Two One Plus from Cork. I've spoken to half a dozen of them. Okay, and I know you go into detail in the book, and people can go and read the book 
uh, one person that I did reach out to, whose name I won't use, said, look, Tony has written his book. He's entitled to write his book. It's his view. Uh, what happened to my family happened to my family. And the account is there from the time the minister rang you to say we got a problem and we need to investigate. Would you do everything the same way again with regard to cervical check and what happened? Uh, in terms of writings, if I was to advise anybody to leave my view out of it, there's a, there's a man called Daniel Murray who writes in the Business Post who writes the most accurate and truthful account of one of the most misunderstood issues in in. In, in relation to care. The majority of the population doesn't understand, unfortunately, that th- th- this audit only happened for people after a cancer diagnosis was made. It what didn't mm-hmm. form part of their treatment. It didn't form part of their diagnosis and management. It was an after-the-fact review to see if an opportunity had been missed or if there was learning that could be applied to try to improve the service for people into the future. And, uh, and it was added, if you like, as an, an extra layer of quality assurance to our programme the UK and a couple of other countries were doing that, but most countries didn't. And when that audit was introduced, our programme said that it wished to give the information back to the women concerned. And I certainly had no objection to that at the time. There's a minute, isn't there, for 2016 where you say that? Yeah, I mean, we, we didn't have an objection to it. like the Because it was being given back to, to, to but women. But when you it, found that it hadn't it, happened... Well, I'll, I'll come to that, but we, 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 we knew in the UK it was being fed back to people and in, in, in one other Scandinavian country, and there weren't any issues about that. So we saw that as a, as, as a positive thing. But in this country, what happened was the, the audit process was designed. We now know that the colposcopists, who are the specialist gyne- gynecologists that you refer to when you have an abnormal smear, they hadn't fully bought into and weren't part of the planning to the extent that, let's say, it was all ready to be fully implemented. So when the information relation to a woman was sent by the screening programme at the national level to their colposcopist or gynaecologist in order to be fed back to the women, some of those gynaecologists didn't feed that information back. Now, that wasn't known as a fact until I led a small team of people over the course of that very first weekend after the, the, that first case involving Ficky Phelan came to light, that established that knowledge on the Sunday afternoon that the number of people for, where this, what's called discordance, in other words, a different interpretation of the original smear in the audit, uh, there were over 200 such cases uh, and there was only evidence in the clinical charts that only about a quarter of them had that information fed back. So that was the first time that anybody knew that mm. there was widespread non-disclosure. And that... Uh, and that was a significant breach of trust because women believed that they were going to have this information fed back to them uh, and it wasn't. And the centre, so when I say the centre, I mean the, the, the screening programme who were running this, they, they didn't have a, a feedback loop that would allow them to know that the information had or had not been fed back to it. There were a lot of people, Tony, uh, rightly or wrongly, blamed you for that non-disclosure. Yeah, well, I had no. I, I understand that, and I understand I was a visible. And probably person, still do, perhaps, uh, and they're entitled to their views. I wasn't in any way involved in the management and oversight of the screening program, which was run by the screening service, which mm-hmm. is a part of the HSE. I didn't work in the HSE. I worked in the Department of Health, but I did have. I was the chief medical officer. I had policy responsibility mm-hmm. for the entirety of the, 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 if you like, the clinical health services. And coming back to and my, my question on it initially was, yeah. that, would you do everything again the same way? Well, I, to be honest with you. I would think more critically about the step of the feeding back of that information because in retrospect and on the balance of the information that we have available to us now, I think that there are other countries, just to point out, Netherlands is an example, Canada is an example, where there's law 
that protects clinical audit from this kind of information having to be shared back with the patients for these very reasons. And I think I'd probably be more sceptical about the value of that because this wasn't information that was being used to improve people's individual clinical services. They'd had their treatments. Mm-hmm. Uh, but it was information designed to improve the quality of the screening programme. Okay. One thing I think that's important to point out is the screening programme, and you'll know this, was based on a so-called pap smear, which Indeed. is a good test, not a perfect test. It has now been effectively replaced for the majority of women by a test that picks up the virus that causes HPV, mm-hmm. uh, causes cervical cancer, sorry, human papillomavirus, HPV. It's a, it's a group of over 100 viruses. A number of them cause cervical cancer. And we cancer. can vaccinate against you, it. You can pick up the virus with the HPV test and you can vaccinate against it. So we're well on the way now to eliminating cervical cancer Which because we have got vaccination that, and we've got screening and both of them working really well. It's the only cancer we can say that about. So it's really exciting yeah. news for women. They've done that They've done that in Australia. They're parts of Australia. Absolutely think, right. And, and you, 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 write, you write a lot in the course of the book about the changing of medical knowledge and research in various things over mm-hmm. the years. Come back lastly to, to Emer. Yes. Um, who, and this is a thing, Tony, we got to know you well over the two years of the pandemic, or we got mm. to know that side of you well. I have a picture in my mind of uh, an intelligent, funny woman who was probably your best friend and your harshest critic when you needed one. How will you remember you? I, I think that's a, that's a pretty accurate description of her. I remember that she was a she was a very private person. Uh, she was she was shy, but she was fun. She was energetic. She was witty. She was warm. She was loving. She was supportive. She was all of those things. She was most more than anything a wonderful mother, like so many mothers to her children. Then once we had Claude and Ronan, they were the centre of her world. But she was at, she was at her best in the middle of her wider feedy family, where she was the kind of life and soul of. And people who might know her all that well might be a little surprised to hear that about her but actually when you put her into that family environment on the beach in Ballybunion where we spent two summers every or two weeks every summer since the children were born and she was going there since she was a small child uh, holding court in a circle of people sitting on deck chairs drinking tea and telling jokes and funny stories yeah that's that's those are the kind of memories that make me smile Alright Dolly it's been a pleasure to finally meet you your book your book is a joy to read Thank, thank right, you very thank much, you very much. I really it's appreciate called, that. It's called We Need to Talk, written by yeah. former Chief Medical Officer Dr. Tony Hullin. Tony, thank you. Really grateful. Thank you very much. Thanks, PJ. Join the conversation. This is the Opinion Line. With Hidden Hearing, focused solely on your hearing health for over 35 years. They're all ears. Visit hiddenhearing.ie. Corks 96 FM. Yeah, a lot of people who have read Tony's book or heard him talk about it. Shiona described it as a beautiful love story and Suzanne says great to hear Tony Houlihan on with PJ I was a fan of Tony's during the pandemic uh, he certainly was the face of it for, for so many people, he was criticised Neffet was criticised the, the, the book actually is a very interesting history of Neffet and how it grew to be so big and the main players in it and, and, their, and their, their calibre and looking back at it now um, would we do everything the same again he said that, probably wouldn't do everything the same again. Uh, but at the time, and he writes also about Mike Ryan of the WHO. I forgot to ask him about it when he was here. Mike Ryan had a thing, um, who, and he always said, perfection is the enemy of good. If you wait till you've got the perf- perfect answer, you'll have the wrong answer almost inevitably. But it's all in the book. It's called uh, We Need to Talk. It's available in all good bookshops now. You can actually download it Actually, if you have a Kindle or any other kind of an e-reader, download it there because it's, it's 
costs considerably less actually to download it. And it is a an interesting read. Oh eight one eight ninety six ninety six ninety six. Now school bus problems. We are a month. Is it a month? Yeah, we're a month into the new school year, and there are still problems with buses. Kildinen, Rathcormac. Monique, good morning. Good morning, PJ. How are you? Good. I, I, I won't say I can't believe it because I'd be lying because I'm doing this job long enough. <laughs> Here we go again more than I can't believe it. What's the story? Yes. Okay, PJ. So I received an email in late July um, at night, 9 p.m. or so, informing me that my bus service, that the bus service is carrying full capacity and they would not be able to offer my son a seat at this time. So upon receiving that email, I called several neighbors and realized that I wasn't the only one inflicted with this problem. So seven other families, 11 children in total attending Skullbreed Rackharmic National School have been left without a seat on the bus. And now we are forced, we're left, we're, we're not even left, we're forced to make alternative arrangements on a daily basis to get our children to and from school. I mean, I live around... Does the bus actually pass your house? Yes, the bus passes my door along with all of our neighbours. You know, we see the bus every morning. It's disheartening for our children to see their friends. I mean, they've they've been through enough. It's it's a negative impact on them. They've they've been through COVID, having to be isolated, being in the countryside, not seeing their friends, and now they're having to actually witness a school bus that they've been on for several years now ah, yeah. and not be able to get on it. So how come My if son, they have been on it for so many years, how come they've been torn down this year? They've been turned down this year because the Department of Education decided to make the scheme free two years ago. And with the Department of Education making it free, they didn't consider the massive volume of applications they would receive. And then in turn, they didn't they didn't think out the whole process. Then in turn, the bus service can't accommodate all the extra um, applications that came through to accommodate people that actually need the service, want the service. They didn't put new buses in place. They didn't ramp up the services. So the children that are concessionary, which are not eligible to get on the bus, there's eligibility if you live, um, if you're living not less than 3.2 kilometers from from your nearest national school. And um, children are not eligible for this transport if they, you know, if they live um further to the, you know, to the, they, if they live closest to the nearest national mm. school. But our concern and our problem here is, is that there is a bus passing our door because we did have a national school that was closer to us. The Kildinan National School closed down several years ago. And mm. when it closed, we are part of the local Rackhormick Parish. So when it closed, we amalgamated to the Rackharmic School. Mm-hmm. And with that amalgamation, we live in the countryside. We're very far out in the countryside. So the parents and 
um, people in this community were quite afraid that they would not have a service provided for their children to get to school. They needed that school bus. And there was a meeting that was set up between Department of Education officials and parents and, you know, the manager of the school at the time, Father Corbett, I believe. Um, And there was an agreement there was agreement put in place that there would be a bus service Mm -hmm. provided for this community, this local parish to Mm -hmm. Rackharmick National School. And it would always be, it would always be there. And And it would always be there for future children. Now there are generations that have gone to the Rackharmick school after going to the Kildinan school. And now You can't expect our children to just go to the nearest local school. We don't, we're part of a parish, a local parish. And in this local parish, we're all of our neighbors. We're hugely involved Mm. in the community. We're involved in the national school, Rekormek National School. We're involved in local clubs, the local GAA. I mean, you can't expect this area to just move to a different school. Well, so Boss Aaron say, and I'm reading from uh, the Irish Times yeah, here, Boss Aaron say that they had an increase in demand and there's it's, it's a question of demand versus supply and effectively someone's going to be disappointed. That's what they seem to think. Yeah. Well, they're, they're classifying it as a concessionary basis. And because the demand for the bus is so high on a concessionary basis, they decided to allot the spare tickets on on an agreed selection process. The agreed selection process is a lottery system. They did not take into account all the children in these seven families that have been using this bus. That's what I wanted to get to, Monique. On a daily basis. Yeah, kids who already had a ticket now don't have one. That seems to me to be grossly unfair. Wrong. It is, it is, they're excluding our children. You know, it's a form of transportation to complete their education in their local national school. And they're excluding, you know, children on this route. You know, we see the bus pass and our neighbor gets picked up, but our child doesn't. That's, 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 that's most the unfair. Bus system, the bus system has to change these rules. You know, you can't make promises. The Department of Education cannot make promises and then go back on them and think it's okay. I mean, for myself, I have three children, okay? And my two oldest children, when they were, they're in secondary school now, but when they were in national school, they were deemed eligible for a bus ticket. And they had a bus ticket. And then I registered my son and he was deemed concessionary. We live in the same household. It makes no sense. No, it doesn't make any sense. And I'm going to have to leave it there with you for no reason other than time. But you have summed it up big time there, Monique. Um, your, your two older children always had tickets. And from the same house, your younger lad now doesn't. And that there's no sense nor meaning to that. It's one we follow again, Monique Barry. There's loads of different cases of this around the county. But thank you. Going to leave it there for now. Thanks, money. Join the conversation. This is the Opinion Line. With Hidden Hearing, changing lives with the latest hearing health technology. They're all ears. Visit hiddenhearing.ie. Cox 96 FM. If you should happen to spot a transit van 
a Ford Transit that looks a bit different to a regular Ford Transit. And then you see someone out the back of it or inside in it painting. Don't be afraid. That's Catherine. Catherine's from Scotland, but now wants to live in Ireland and is touring around in this mobile studio, which has a wonderful story. Catherine, good morning. Morning. How ah, are you doing? There you are. There you are. You 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 bought this Ford Transit. Morning, PJ. Hi. Hi. In yeah, hi. <laughs> you bought it in 2020 and then decided to visit Ireland and now you want to live here. Yeah, pretty much. Um, yeah, I first came for three weeks and just fell in love with the West Coast. Yeah. And then now this year, after a few more trips, I decided to move. And talk to me about the van. Um, so her name's Daisy. Um, I bought her from London and then converted her. She already had a conversion in her. Um, and I changed it to a better layout for surfboards and an art studio. Um, but she does me very well. She has all the amenities of a house. Solar power, heater, fridge, hob. A very comfortable bed, and yeah, more most importantly, all of my art materials and all my surfing equipment. Right. There seems to be a big delay on this line, but we'll do the best we can with it. And why did you decide to take the nomadic life? What attracted you to just moving around from place to place? I mean, I had a van and a flat um, for two months, but to be honest, at the end of the two months, I just wasn't using my flat enough. Um, it keeps me outdoors. It makes me surf more. It, all of my art is to do with being connected to nature. So it made sense to live that way. Um, and yeah, to be honest, like reducing outgoing expenses and living costs is such a big thing for everyone right now. Mm-hmm. It definitely was a factor of van life. And to be honest, I just love trying out new doorstep views. Now, look... You're in Donegal at the moment, and it is a beautiful part of the world. You want to come to Cork. You have, you will spend many, many enjoyable days driving and weeks driving along our coast. This delay is awful, Catherine, so we will talk again when you get to Cork. But you would like people to recommend to you places yes, in Cork that you could visit. Thank you so much. So where, where, might you, where, might you, where might they contact you? On my on my Instagram, I would love I always love recommendations of counties on my Instagram. So by Catherine Johnson. Um and yeah, I always love new recommendations for counties I've never visited okay. to get the sort of local perspective. Okay. Okay. So by Catherine Johnson on Instagram, find it and uh, maybe when she get does get to Cork and we can organize less of a delay cuz she's only in Donegal, she's not in outer Gibraltar. But there's a delay on that line, which is probably a fault. So, Catherine, we will talk again. Safe travels and and welcome to Ireland. Lastly, but by no means least, Avril from Kerala Childcare. The protest is continuing today, Avril. Good, good morning, PJ. We're down here. The protest and provider drafters coming out in their droves, as you can hear from behind. And we're getting absolutely amazing support by the traffic that are passing. This is down at the City Hall now. Pardon? Down at the City Hall. Down at City Hall. Sorry, I don't know where I said. Down at City Hall here in the city. And we're getting fantastic support. So, yes, people are supporting us. This is fantastic. I'm talking all week to to members of of your profession, as it were. The minister just seems to want to dig his heels in. He wants to dig his heels in, but I think we're after putting the pressure under him. And he's been questioned, so that's fantastic for us, you know. 
Um, so we've loads of TVs backing us and they all went into questioning or a question session in Dublin on Tuesday and yeah, we have him under pressure now so that's a good thing. It's two that's weeks to thing. the budget. Is there a hope that he'll change his mind? I would be hoping that something would be come out of the budget in 10 weeks' time. Will it be what we actually want? I don't know, but it'll be better than what we're getting, if that makes sense. And so if you don't get better circum- be- be- better funding better or fun- better... Yes. Will you go out we, again? Yes, we are planning to announce a date on Monday for October where we will be uh, protesting once again for a full day and we will rock up in Dublin again and there will be more of us. There. All right, all right, all right. Yeah. Just brief time to catch up there, Avalon. And care a lot, child care, early childhood providers, loads of them protesting this week because of the crazy situation. That's it. It has been a very busy one. Programme edited today by Fergal Barry, produced and researched by Richard Vickery. We'll put all your podcasts up ASAP. And I'll talk to you tomorrow, Friday, just after nine. Join the conversation. This is the Opinion Line. With Hidden Hearing, focused solely on your hearing health for over 35 years. They're all ears. Visit hiddenhearing.ie. Cox 96 FM.